You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Andrew Hironich is a graduate of Liberty University and current master's student at Princeton Theological Seminary. He is the author of the forthcoming book, Once Loved, Always Loved, The Logic of Apocatastasis, and regularly participates in interviews and debates to promote his work on this subject. I wanted to get his perspective on Lee Strobel's critique of Christian Universalism, so I'm pleased he's carved out some time out of his busy schedule to spend some time with us today. Welcome, Andrew Hironich, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you, David, for having me. Glad to be here. Well, that's an interesting journey from Liberty University to Princeton Theological Seminary, and I was wondering if you could just sketch that out for us a little bit. Yeah, it was funny. I remember when I uh, first did the interviews for Princeton, and they asked me, why would a Liberty student want to come to Princeton Theological Seminary? And um, being me, when I was young, I uh, grew up reading the Church Fathers and reading many of the scholastic theologians, and so I had an understanding of the broader spectrum of Christian thought, and I always appreciated a more open conversation. And so I was always more open to hearing both sides as opposed to strawmanning the other side and ignoring what they had to say. And so uh, now that I had got to experience what I consider to be conservative evangelicalism, I wanted to know what the other side, so to speak, had to say about these issues. And so uh, that was part of my desire to go to Princeton. What was interesting was that uh, I came to believe in Christian universalism prior to going to Princeton while I was still at Liberty. It was an interesting journey. I was part of an apologetics organization where I would answer a bunch of questions that people would send in on just about every topic under the sun. And a common theme was the question of why would the God of love send individuals to hell? And I had read C.S. Lewis, I had read Jerry Walls, and I knew the answers that were expected of me to give. But I remember one mother in particular where she said that she had spoken with her little boy uh, the night before. And she said that the little boy asked her, how could God send even one person to hell forever? And I had no idea what to say to a mother like that, because I couldn't imagine being in that situation, knowing better and telling your child something that you just don't believe in. And it was that that moment I really began to struggle because I was not secure in my belief concerning the traditionalist uh, view of hell. And eventually I came to the belief at liberty that apocatastasis was the true orthodoxy of Christianity. And that didn't come about by me reading Rob Bell or David Bentley Hart. It came about by me reading the Apostle Paul. I was doing a devotional one day, reading through Romans 5, and I was just following the logic of Paul, and I was shocked. I got to verses 18 and 19, and I still have written down in my Bible the question that I asked myself. I said, does Paul mean that all men shall be justified? And I want to show you it, David. These are my notes on Romans 5. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, for those of you who are listening, let me just say that that Andrew's Bible is as marked as any Bible I've ever seen. <laughs> it, it's, it's hard work is what it is. And I remember it was several months 
of me just deeply researching this question of whether or not Paul means that all men will be justified. And at first, I thought perhaps this is just a presumption of Paul. Perhaps he's just hopeful, uh, like he's Hans Urs von Balthasar or something. But then when I looked deeper, I understood that this gets to the heart of Pauline theology, especially Romans 11.32. And it was then that I became truly convinced that apocatastasis was, in fact, genuine Christianity. So this was before I ever transitioned to Princeton Theological Seminary. It was still while I was at Liberty that I came to this view. Now tell, just uh, for the listeners, Romans 11.32, what was it about that verse? Um, it's seen the parallelism that Paul drew between those who were shut up in obedience, uh, disobedience, and those whom God desired to show mercy. So Paul says, for God has consigned all to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. And prior to this moment, I was a five-point Calvinist. And so I, I wasn't so sure that God desired to save all, right? There was the distinction between God's wills. And so Romans 9 through 11, it ironically did it for me because many Calvinists focus on chapter 9, and I noticed that, that they'll ignore chapters 10 and 11. And it was when I kept on reading that I understood that uh, my Calvinism could not survive Pauline theology. Okay, and you mentioned uh, distinctions of wills within God when you were talking. Can you say just a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. So a common argument that one will hear by people um, such as prominent Calvinists as John Piper is that there are distinctive wills in God. There is God's preceptive will, that's um, God's commands, that which he desires for us to do. There is God's benevolent will, which is his uh, just good disposition towards us. He makes his reign fall on the just and the unjust alike. And then there is God's decretive will, that which he decrees to come to pass. And I used to see this as a way out. Um, John Piper, he wrote a chapter on this and his contribution to the book Still Sovereign. And then he had a little booklet on this. And first I found it uh, kind of convincing because you can see different places where the word will is used differently in the Bible for sure. But I didn't find the Calvinist interpretation convincing over the long one because I realized that it just isn't true that God can love some uh, that God can love all in some ways and some in all ways, because if God decrees for some to be reprobate, then there's no meaningful way in which he loves them. I mean, that would be like saying that a scientist who wants to perform fatal experiments, that he goes out and he gets test subjects, right? Human test subjects, and he mm -hmm. gets them gym memberships and he gives them food and, and they grow up and they mature, but only so that he can perform fatal experiments on them. Right. So will we consider these actions actions of love or to be more personal, it would be like if a young man uh, bought a woman flowers and he bought her chocolates right on their first date and he got her all these nice material possessions. Now, you might say, oh, this is an act of love. But what if it was really just so he could bet her that first night? Right. And then be done with her. Um, I don't think we could would consider that love in the slightest at all. And so that is my concern is that when I look deeper into it, it material possessions being bestowed upon those who are not elect is not an act of love. It's actually an act of hatred and judgment, as consistent Calvinists like Arthur W. Pink say, because those blessings will be a source of torment in the long run. So if someone like David is a king and I'm a pauper, well, when David loses out on all the privileges that come with being a king, that's going to be a worse source of punishment in hell than it will be for the pauper who never experienced that. And John Calvin specifically noted that. So I realized that I didn't have an out with the different wills of God to say that God loved all people in some ways. Either I had to say that God truly hated certain individuals before they were ever born, that he never had any love for them whatsoever, 
or I had to admit that Calvinism was ultimately bankrupt. Well, I, I think that's one of the reasons that sometimes people move away from Calvinism into more of a free will kind of approach. And that, that had been what I had done, but I ultimately found out that I ran, in, ran into a similar problem even in the free will approach because I still had a God with foreknowledge who gave free will knowing that these people would use the free will ultimately to their own damnation and that he would then torment them for it. And so I found out that moving away from Calvinism into an Arminian or free will position at first seemed like it had solved my problem. Uh, but then I realized that it really didn't. Have you experienced that as well? I did. I found it interesting that it seemed like many people who were already Christian were convinced by the free will argument. I just wasn't. Um, even as a Christian, it just wasn't that convincing to me that free will was such a sacred thing that God couldn't dare trespass upon it. Because thinking through the lens of a parent-child analogy, we all know that uh, a child will attempt to make choices that we could consider irreparable harm, such as suicide. And we would attempt to prevent that child from doing so. And we wouldn't say that we've violated that child. We've actually done something good for the child because the child may be going through a phase such as puberty. Right. We're at that phase. It's, um, mm -hmm. it's well known that there are statistics where people experience depression and anxiety. And so if a parent was to restrain a child from thrusting themselves into the flames, is this wrongheaded for a parent to do? And then the question comes, is that parent more loving than God who will allow the child, his own child, to do such a thing? And so, yeah, the, the free will argument never really much convinced me. As you said, the foreknowledge argument was also a problem. If, if God knew that these persons were going to choose alienation from him, why bother creating them? And so then you have arguments that uh, William Lane Craig and Molinus set forth. And then you have arguments from open theists. And as David has seen in my book, I'm not convinced that uh, any of those actually save the day. Yeah. Uh, I want to just make one comment and then get to your book. The, the free will thing, too, not only you could say that the parents violate the child's free will, but the child is out of its mind. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to say that the, that the will of the child is actually free when it's under all kinds of duress and delusion. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it reminds me of uh, what we call the age of consent here in America, is that up to a certain age, you're not able to give sexual consent. Now, that's, that's not saying that you can't think about these things, but it's saying that your faculties haven't been fully developed to the point where you're able to give consent. And we understand that intuitively. So it's quite shocking to me that we don't understand this on a deeper spiritual level, like Christ did when Christ said, Father, forgive them in the Gospel of Luke. For they know not what they do. Now, he didn't just say, Father, forgive them and hand them a cookie and send them on their way. There was a reason why they should be forgiven, and that's because they were ignorant. They didn't know what they were doing. The same goes for the Apostle Paul, where he says that um, he was forgiven because of his former ignorance. And Jesus says that if you sin, you're a slave to sin. It's the truth that shall set you free. And so there it seems like the authors of Scripture tie ignorance and sin together. And so that to be really free is to have chosen the good. To have not chosen the good is to not have ever known the good. Well, you mentioned a little bit about your book. Can you tell us uh, where you are in relation to that and what your hopes are for this upcoming book? Sure, yeah. So I'm actually going to finish edits and give it back to my uh, editor hopefully this weekend. It will be all said and done. right? I like to tell people, like the end, it is coming soon. 
<laughs> and uh, so it is a thorough treatment of the subject. Uh, I noticed that there were many gaps in the literature when I first examined uh, this area of apocatastasis. For example, there didn't seem to be a substantial response to open theists who claim that God simply doesn't infallibly know the future. And so I wanted to respond to people like Greg Boyd, uh, who's been very gracious in this process. Uh, there also didn't seem to be ample responses to Molinists. I'm surprised that there aren't more universalists who are Molinists, perhaps it's because of the influence of people like William Lane Craig. And so I hope to offer some uh, different perspectives on how Molinism might be compatible with a Christian universalist perspective. Um, so those are a lot having to do with the foreknowledge aspect. I also want to tie together more scriptural arguments that are lacking. Luke 16, 16, for example, is a favorite of mine that Laurie Vermelli brings out in her own work. And I noticed that this was lacking in scriptural arguments for apocatastasis. And then I have a bunch of appendices that I added. And one of them, uh, which is my favorite, David, which I want to send to you, is how non-universalists argue like atheists. And maybe we can get into that more at some time, because I, when I watched um, atheist debates when I was back in apologetics, I noticed now looking back that many traditionalists who are arguing against universalists sound a lot like the atheist interlocutors in the way that they argument, the fallacies that they present, whether it's fallacies that come from um, either ad hoc or red herrings or guilt by association or appeals to authority. I mean, you name it. And the reason why I compare them to atheists, because we could just say, well, that's just human beings, right? Human beings are just illogical. It's because Christians seem to be aware of these logical fallacies when debating atheists. They're quick to call them out and say, well, that's a logical fallacy. But when they're debating a universalist, they're not so quick to point out their own logical fallacies. And so I wanted to bring it to the forefront to say that we need to be consistent in our conversations with people that we disagree with, whether it's an atheist or a fellow Christian. And so that was perhaps one of my favorite appendices that I was able to add recently in my edits. Well, you were kind enough to send me an advanced copy of what, you, what you're working on so far. I know you're continuing to edit, but I was very impressed with your ability to work through the philosophical arguments and counter arguments. And I think that your book is a real contribution to the discussion. And so I look forward to it coming out and having us more time to uh, having more time to talk about it. But what I wanted to get to today was um, a recent book by Lee Strobel, uh, A Case for Heaven, published by Zondervan in 2021. And as part of that, uh, Lee Strobel brings up some in his conversation partner, Paul Copan, bring up some really uh, what I would say common objections. I might even call them kind of knee-jerk objections to Christian universalism. And so I'm not mad at Lee Strobel or Paul Copan. I think they're acting out of goodwill. But I thought that their critiques would be a good opportunity for us to get to discuss just some of the topics that come up when the topic of Christian universalism comes up. So what I'll do is I'll just go through some of these critiques and I'll start and I'll let you respond to them. And the first one is that Strobel and Copan say that Christian universalism goes against the church's traditional position of eternal conscious torment established by such notable figures as Tertullian, Lactantius, Basil of Caesarea, Jerome, Cyril of Jerusalem, Chrysostom, Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Edwards, Whitfield, and Wesley. As Lee Strobel summarizes, 
Universalism falls outside the pale of the mainstream Christian tradition, although there are pockets of it in church history. Andrew, how would you respond to that? Yeah, uh, first I'd say I'd encourage people to actually read the book. I, I never encourage people to be silent on this issue or to ignore what the other side has to say. Uh, we should by all means engage with our interlocutors. And I have nothing but deep respect for Strobel and Copan. In fact, I just bought Copan's new book, Is God a Vindictive Bully? So over the years, they contributed much in terms of helping Christians just in general through apologetics and think critically about these issues. So I'm very thankful for what they have done and uh, for what God's going to do through them in the future. At the same time, nobody's above criticism, right? None of us are infallible, especially if you're evangelical. There's no pope amongst evangelicals, not even John Stott. And so uh, it's important that we critically examine these claims that Strobel and Copain have made. What Strobel says in this one objection that you bring up is that he cites, first of all, Robert Peterson, a well-known evangelical, quote-unquote, authority on this topic. And what's interesting is that Peterson cites several figures which people like Eloria Ramelli and John Wesley Hansen and uh, David Bentley Hart have cited as universals. For example, Basil of Caesarea, Jerome, and even John Wesley have all been claimed by universalists. Jerome, it may be said, did not believe at later points in his life in the ultimate salvation of Satan, perhaps. Now, there's a debate there whether that makes him universalist. I think it still does because there are annihilationists who believe that the devil will be tormented forever. And so they're more focused on the salvation of all human beings. So I would still say that Jerome still fits within the circles of Christian universalism, even with his later denial of the salvation of Satan. Basil Casaria also was a well-known individual who had leanings towards Christian universalism, who I believe was a Christian universalist. And John Wesley himself, I quote in my book, where John Wesley said that it is as easy for God to save the whole world as it is for him to save an individual. And there's a great doctoral thesis um, by some theologian notoriety, I cannot remember off the top of my head, who made the argument that Wesley himself was a universalist. So I find it quite interesting that in this list that uh, Robert Peterson cited, that several of the individuals he gave, I mean, were not even traditionalists. The other interesting thing I found is that the argument that Peterson seems to be making strikes me as an argument that Protestants should be wary of, just given the history of Protestantism. So Johann Eck famously in his um, case against Luther, asked him, you're going against so many doctors of the church, so many theologians of the past, right? Does that not irk you? And Luther realized that his conscience was held fast to sacred scripture and pure reason. And evangelicals have long praised Luther for taking this stance. So why should Peterson shame the universalists for doing likewise, even if it was the case that there were few theologians, which is not the case? That supported Christian universalism. It strikes me as very un-Protestant-like. Moreover, if if all Copan is trying to say is that Christian universalists have been a minority throughout the 2,000 years of Christian history, well, that's true. Do you know what? It's also true that for Baptists to claim that infant baptism is unbiblical— Well, they're outside the pale of Christian tradition. The majority of Christians today still practice from baptism. Regenerational baptism has been the dominant view for centuries on end. And so if the idea is that the minority cannot be right, well, then I just cite Soren Kierkegaard that the crowd is untruth, right? And so I'd be very careful of making appeals to the crowd and saying we count truth by noses, because what if it's the case that the Christian church 
continues for 100,000 more years. All right, so we had first 2,000 years, let's say that the traditionalist view dominated. But let's say that the Christian church continues for another 100,000 years, and that in the last, let's say, 96,000 years, the Christian universalist view dominates. So would Peterson make the same argument? Right. And, and so uh, one of the questions that I have for Peterson and for Strobel is how long does a view have to be in place for it to be considered authoritative? So what's the what's the time limit? Is it 500 years? Is it a thousand years? Is it 2000 years? Because depending on the answer to that question, I'm not sure why Peterson and others believe in the doctrine of once saved, always saved, uh, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. When many noted theologians of the past, for centuries did not. They believed that ultimately the elect would be saved, but that not all believers would be saved. There they drew a distinction. So those are my concerns, I guess, as an evangelical and as a fellow Protestant that I would raise to people like Strobel, Copan, and Robert Peterson on this issue. And one of the things I discovered is that if you look at the history of Christianity, you have to sort of make a distinction about Western Christianity and the Western Christian tradition, which really gets kind of started in the early Middle Ages. But if you look at the early centuries of the church and the place where Christianity was formally taught and some of the greatest church uh, fathers and thinkers, uh, you see a, a very prominent strand of Christian universalism among them and even among the general populace, which was admitted even by somebody like Augustine. Yeah, uh, you remind me, David, that it was Basil Kassari, I believe, who said that very many, if not the majority in his day, uh, believed in Christian universalism. So it's interesting that Peterson cites him as authority. I also noticed that I think it's five of the figures, maybe six, that Peterson cites are in the Augustinian tradition. So his figures of authority that he cites for, against Christian universalism happen to come from one stream. Of Christian thought. He doesn't cite many Eastern thinkers. He doesn't cite many um, theologians from, uh, if I can just be quite frank, from Africa or South America or from places outside what we consider Western um, Europe or North America. And I do have a concern there that it's almost silencing the other voices as if they have nothing to contribute to this conversation. I'd be very careful of what's a selective, it seems, a very selective uh, choice of theologians in this case. All right, well, let's move on to a second concern raised by Strobel and Copan, is that the main advocate of Christian universalism was Origen, and he was condemned as a heretic by the church at the Fifth Ecumenical Council in 553 AD. Yeah, so I guess there would be a debate over what exactly they mean by the word main, because certainly Origen wasn't the first advocate. I mean, I believe that uh, perhaps one of the most prominent universalists of our time was Jesus of Nazareth, <laughs> you know, a man of notoriety, and uh, the Apostle Paul. But certainly before Origen, we can find universalist traces through Bardazan and Clement of Alexandria, the Coptic Apocalypse of Elijah, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Sabellian Oracles, and all these texts date prior to Origen. Clement of Alexandria, for example, constantly references the Apocalypse of Peter specifically. And the Apocalypse of Peter, as Bart Ehrman beautifully points out in a new book, <laughs> straightforwardly affirms Christian universalism, and this dates prior to Origen. So I don't think the argument that Strobel and Copan are making is that Origen was the first universalist. That's certainly false. If they want to say that he was the prime that he was the prime proponent of this view, well, that's still debatable. I mean, Gregory of Nyssa, I might consider to be a more vocal advocate of this view, that origin. It seemed like origin wanted, for pastoral reasons, 
at times he wanted to cloud his view on Christian universalism, where Gregory of Nyssa was quite fine bringing, bringing his view to the forefront there. Now, what this really amounts to is a guilt by association, uh, is that what he's trying to do is he's trying to align the Christian universalist tradition with the so-called condemnation of origin. That is guilt by association. That uh, How would he like it if I did something like that with the Protestant tradition, where, for example, Martin Luther wrote a book that was called On the Jews and Their Lies, a very anti-Semitic book. Yes. Now, what if I said that the Protestant movement, because of Luther, right, has its roots in anti-Semitism? Well, probably someone will point out that Martin Luther wasn't the only fountainhead of the Protestant Reformation. There were other individuals. Um, there were individuals such as John Calvin or Erasmus of Rotterdam, uh, individuals who were not just consigned to Luther's way of thinking. And I would say the same with Christian universalism, is that Origen was not the only thinker, and that Gregory of Nyssa was never condemned for his views. So even if, hypothetically, which I don't believe to be the case, even if Origen was justly condemned, this would say nothing about the views of people like uh, Gregory of Nyssa and others like him. And so this really amounts just to a guilt by association. However, I find this rich that this is coming from a Protestant. So Gavin Ortland, who's a very well-known Protestant uh, pastor and scholar and YouTuber, recently made a series of videos coming out against the Second Council of Nicaea and its view on icons. And Peterson, who comes from the Reformed tradition, can probably appreciate these concerns. And I'm not sure about Peterson, but knowing many people in the Reformed tradition, they're also against the Second Council of Nicaea, which was an ecumenical council. <laughs> and so I always have this um, curiosity of which councils do the Protestants pick and choose? I mean, is this a buffet where you can pick this council, you cannot pick this council? Because the same ecumenical council that supposedly condemned Origen also gave Mary the title of ever-virgin, fixing her perpetual virginity in church dogma. So I wonder, does Strobel agree with this assessment? Does he believe that Mary is a perpetual virgin? William Lane Craig also affirms a view called monothelitism, where he believes that there's only one will in Christ and not two wills, or dialethelitism. So is William Lane Craig a heretic because he denies the ecumenical councils on this issue? What about Kyleism? So many Protestants are what we call premillennialists, and yet there are people who make the argument that, again, one of the ecumenical councils condemned Kyleism or premillennialism. So does this mean that every premillennialist is a heretic because they're going against the ecumenical councils? Well, I think what people would say is, well, before condemning someone as a heretic and saying this is what the council has said, we should try to study these councils and see, can we find any evidence that this was the case, that premillennialism was condemned? And what I find rich is that I've noticed that many evangelical scholars will do everything in their power to show that premillennialism was never condemned by an ecumenical council, but they won't show the same charity to Christian universalism or people like Origen. And I think as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to do just that. We need to be scholarly in our work, and we need to be charitable in everything we do. Well, there was uh, quite a bit of political influence at that time when councils were called. Uh, if you think well, it was just a bunch of people in the church getting together to work through theological issues. Um, that wouldn't really help you understand that, well, the, the, this was called, called by the emperor. There were all kinds of things that were going on in the background here. The name of origin was uh, put in a list of heretics, but there was no context as to what he was condemned for. There were imperial anathemas that preceded that council, but weren't a part of the official records of the council. Uh, the whole thing, 
to use a theological term, was a giant mess <laughs> in <laughs> some ways. And, but what happened was after that time, it kind of became de facto the case that in Western Christendom, you could get in trouble for being an annihilationist or a Christian universalist because the only acceptable view then kind of after that time uh, was e the eternal conscious torment view. So that helps me to understand why that view got so cemented into the Western Christian tradition. No, yeah, the, uh, like you said, the Emperor Justinian was looking for concord. That was a big thing with the Roman emperors. They were looking for one God, one religion, one emperor. And to that end, they- And formed... one law. Yeah, and one law. <laughs> and one law, that's right. Yeah. And I, I think to an extent we can appreciate an emperor wanting to not have division amongst his people. But Justinian was a notorious case, and he's not the best example to set forward of a godly emperor. I think we should all agree on. And I think we should be very wary about when emperors and politicians begin to influence Christian doctrines. For example, if Joe Biden was to call together uh, an ecumenical council, right, and say that we should condemn, I don't know, David Platt or Francis Chan or somebody, why should we as Christians accept this from, from someone who's in, in all likelihood, he's not well-versed in theology, right? He has political motivations. And I think that we need to be careful as well to examine the historicity um, and the, the historical stance, uh, circumstances and political circumstances surrounding Justinian's decisions. And we should ju not just accept them as gospel truth. So, and like you said, Origen did become something of a whipping boy in that Laurie Romelli points out in Origenian scholarship, uh, there's something of a question of whether there were two origins. Like, it, it, it's a difficult subject, uh, honestly, to address. And um, there were many originist apologists who tried to defend origin and say that origin never said such things. And again, I think we need to show Christian charity and that we can show many cases where things are ascribed to people still alive today that they never once said. And we should say it's not fair to align somebody for things that they never actually taught. Origen himself taught during his own day that people were interpolating his works. I mean, they were inserting things that he never said into his own texts when they were reproducing them. And he was concerned about that. And I think that we should be concerned if someone was to treat us that way. And so if we don't like someone to treat us that way, we shouldn't like others to treat somebody else that way who's a fellow brother and sister in Christ. All right, let's keep on moving through some of these uh, concerns. Here's another one. This is a quote from Paul Copan. <laughs> He says, I believe universalism is an aberrant and dangerous doctrine. You certainly get no hint of it in the Old Testament, where Psalm 1-6 reads, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Yeah, I find this most interesting because um, when I was reading back in the book as a whole, and I found earlier in the chapter that when Copan was talking about annihilation with Froebel, he called this a secondary issue. And he went on to say, it's not a major doctrinal deviation, even if I disagree with it. There's some precedent among a few early church fathers who held this view, and there are solid evangelical scholars who embrace it. When conditionalism is the position of someone as biblically sound and well-respected as John Stott, we should be very careful about using the heretical label. So I find this remarkable, because couldn't one make the same argument as Copan and turn it on its head by saying, quote, there's some precedent for universalism among many early church fathers who held this view. And there are solid evangelical scholars like William Barclay, Robin Parry, Douglas Campbell, etc., who embrace it. So Copan's very argument in support of annihilationism as a quote-unquote secondary issue, which is not heretical, could be turned on its head and used for universalism. 
Also, Copan should know better than proof texting. First of all, Psalm 1-6 has nothing to do with the final judgment. It is referring to God's judging a person prematurely in history for their deeds. But that's not the end of the individual. Uh, there is resurrection that comes, and there is, as universals point out, the possibility of posthumous repentance after one dies. This has absolutely nothing to do with final judgment. And Copan especially should know this because in his book, Is God a Moral Monster?, Copan repeatedly points out that many Christians will take a surface reading of many violent texts in the Old Testament or unsettling texts in the Old Testament. And Copan constantly says that we need to go beyond a surface examination and we should stray away from proof texting, right? We should seek to understand the historical context. We should seek to understand the language. I find this rich because if we should seek to do all that, why should we do that with Psalm 1-6? Why is just simply quoting a single verse, not a case of classical proof texting? We should seek to understand the whole counsel of God, not just a single verse. So, yeah, I have, um, I have deep reservations about this uh, particular objection, as well as the fact that on page 156, Strobel says to Copan about annihilationism, you sound sympathetic to their case. I mean, this is incredible. So why is it that Copan is more sympathetic to a view that says God obliterates persons than a view that says God saves persons? So I, I find that very concerning that the Augustinian tradition has so influenced us that when we come to a view that is, quote unquote, more just, right, rather than more loving or more merciful, we'll say that we're more sympathetic with that cause. Because at the end of the day, we think that God is owed a pound of flesh. So maybe instead of a pound, if God gets eight ounces of flesh, maybe I should be more sympathetic to that view, rather than the view that says that God doesn't extract a pound of flesh. So uh, those are some of my concerns uh, with that objection. Okay, here's another concern. Strobel admits that there is an emotional tug to the idea of all being saved. Paul Copan responds, Yes, who doesn't want everyone to be saved? Even God desires it, he declared, his eyes widening. As 1 Timothy 2.4 and 2 Peter 3.9 say, he wants all to come to a knowledge of the truth, but Christ is the potential Savior of all, not the actual Savior of all. In other words, salvation is universal in intent, that is, God's desired will, but it is not achieved in fact, that is, God's permissive will. While salvation is potentially offered to all, not all freely accepted. The scriptures, he continued, repeatedly indicate that there will always be creatures who fully and finally say no to God. Finite moral agents, whether angelic or human, have the capacity to choose contrary to God's moral order. Only God is necessarily good. He cannot do what is wrong. The same isn't true for contingent moral creatures like us who can choose lesser finite goods over the ultimate good. They can turn a good thing into a substitute and fall prey to idolatry. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot here to unpack, isn't there? I mean, first of all, he tries to draw this distinction that you constantly hear between um, Christ being the potential savior of all and not the actual. The Bible makes no such distinction. You won't find a single passage that says Christ is the potential savior of all. I mean, this is this is just silly. Uh, imagine, for example, this is a illustration I often give that I'm a lifeguard at a pool and I'm wearing a shirt that says the savior of the pool. And uh, you bring your child to the pool, and you look at the pool, and there's a bunch of dead kids that have drowned in the pool. And he said, oh, my gosh, what happened to these kids? And you look at me, and you say, how can you call yourself the savior of the pool? I said, well, because I made the kids savable. I mean, I, I gave them rafts. I gave them floaties. And so I was really, I was the potential savior of the pool. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, nobody would send their child there, all right? 
and this brings up, um, I guess, the question of whether or not on the traditionalist view or the annihilationist view, we should even consider bringing children into this world. But that's beside the point. The point is that the Bible does not draw this distinction between Christ being the potential Savior versus Christ being the actual Savior. In 1 Timothy 4.10, it says that Christ is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. And instead of adopting a view of eternal justification that's common in the Reformed tradition and looking at other ways in which this could be consistent, Paul Copan instead draws this distinction between potentiality and actuality, which any classical theist should know is sketchy ground. So we could pursue more there. But there are other concerns that I have with this objection. So first of all, it seems to be, again, a case where this is an appeal that atheists often make, which is wish fulfillment. Atheists will often tell Christians that, well, you just want God to be real, right? So this is Strobel's arguing just like many of these atheists, him and Copan, saying, well, universalists only believe in universal. Nor is it not just that they only believe. I mean, this is a prime reason. It is because of cultural sensibilities. So that's rich because I'm trying to remember which Calvinist it was. There was a Calvinist at Princeton Theological Seminary back in the day. I, oh, Charles Hodge, who during the time of the abolitionist movement, Charles Hodge says that you can't produce a single verse in Scripture that supports the abolitionist movement. He says that Scripture through and through supports slavery so that if you are to get rid of slavery, you must get rid of the whole Bible. Okay. So imagine someone like Hodge talking to someone like Strobel, who doesn't think that slavery is appropriate, and saying, well, that's just your cultural sensibilities. So when a man beats his slave, but hey, his eye doesn't pop out, he doesn't die in two days, right? He's just beating a slave. Then Hodge might say, well, that's in the Bible. And the only reason why you're objecting to that is because of your cultural sensibilities. Another example would be a bear baiting. When Christians at church picnics would often tie a bear to a tree and sick pit bulls on them. Okay. I think that we would say that this is a disgusting practice. Well, is that because of my cultural sensibilities, right? The thing is that we're, if this is the objection, we're all guilty of cultural sensibilities, right? We're all guilty of reading the Bible through a cultural lens. That just simply can't be helped. But what this really amounts to the genetic fallacy is that Simply, even if it was true, even if it was a case, which I deny, that universalism has arisen because of our cultural sensibilities, that wouldn't mean that universalism is false. Again, that's just like atheist argument for wish fulfillment. It's just a classical case of the genetic fallacy. But I did some more digging on Strobel. And so Strobel here claims, it seems to be, that many people, if not most people, want universalism to be true. I don't think that's the case. I mean, just turn on CNN and Fox News and put it side by side. Do you really think that people want to see Donald Trump in heaven, right? Uh, do, they, do you really think that there are Christians out there who want Adolf Hitler to be in heaven? And Strobel is a classic example. So in an episode on The Line of Fire with Jerry Walls and Gary Amaral, Strobel was repeatedly just angry at Gary Amaral for suggesting that Adolf Hitler himself would be saved. Strobel said, quote, if you had told me as an atheist that God exists and he is only love and Adolf Hitler's in heaven, I don't know what I've done with that, end quote. He goes on to say, quote, I think God is love, but he's also just. He's also righteous. And so what this shows me is that Strobel himself bears witness in that universalism is not the common views of the masses. Perhaps we want an optimistic view where many nice people get in, like Gandhi and people outside the Christian faith. 
But I think it is rare in between that people genuinely want Christian universalism where everybody is eventually saved. Yeah, I, I and, just let me just yeah. jump in right here and say that, that that's what I found was that when when I was a Christian who believed that God was going to save all of the savable people, but there might just be a certain, I don't know, like scum, these people that were just so horrible and so awful that not even God could save them and, and that they, by their own choice, had made themselves unsavable. Now, when I held that view, everybody liked that. But when I said, when I said, you know what, I've, I've, I've been thinking about this more and, and doing a lot of research and study, and I finally decided, I think God can even save the scum and that maybe any one of us could have been the scum if the shoe had been on the other foot. That, now, people found that offensive. So I found if, if, you want to, if you want to think that everybody loves it when you believe that God will save all, just go around and tell that to people. And you'll find out that hardly anybody loves it. No, yeah. In fact, it's interesting because I think that an argument that you can see running through people like Alyssa Childer's work and Strobel's work and Copan's work is that um, universalism is something that would be accepted by atheists. But I think it's actually universalism is offensive to people who hate God. And I'm, and I'm not saying all atheists hate God, but I'm saying there are certainly some. I can think of Richard Dawkins and the Christopher Hitchens. I mean, do we honestly believe that what they really want is to be in heaven praising God, you know, dancing in his presence, right? And so universalism is actually offensive to people who are invested in their sin because it tells you, you will not always be this way. In fact, there is coming a time when God will humble your proud heart and bring you to the point of surrender. For people who love their sin, <laughs> that's an absolutely offensive message. So, no, I don't believe at all that atheists are just, you know, piling into the ranks of universalists. Well, and another thing I found out is that I kind of come from the more mainline Protestant side of things. And one of the things I found out is that once I started talking about my Christian universalism, some of my more progressive Protestant friends said, oh, so you mean that in the end, all the Muslims, all the Jews, all of the uh, Hindu, everybody, all the atheists, everybody is going to be praising and worshiping Jesus, and we're all going to be happy about that? Don't you think that's kind of narrow-minded? So I got some pushback on the liberal progressive side mm -hmm. that my Christian universalism was too narrow because I was making Jesus into the only path by which God and humanity were reconciled. Yeah, you'll see this view, won't you, in uh, the work of inclusivists like Clark Pinnock is someone I think of. Is there, They proclaim there to be a wideness in God's mercy and they rush to limit it, you know, lest they be cascaded from the evangelical ranks. So it's appropriate to say, like someone like C.S. Lewis, well, I really hope it's true. There's the large likelihood it's true, but I can't say for sure. <laughs> for me, that's, that's just silliness. Uh, I think that the Bible, if for a Protestant especially, who in the Western quadrilateral, uh, quadrilateral, he holds Scripture to be the supreme authority. If Scripture has spoken, and if Scripture has made clear that all will be saved, well, then that's that. You know, regardless of what you feel about it, regardless of how I feel about gravity, whether it works in my favor, whether it works against my favor, you know, gravity still exists unless you're a gravity denier, right? And the same case with universalism, regardless of whether or not I want it to be true, right? Regardless of whether or not I want Hitler to be saved, Hitler's going to be saved, right? And so I think we need to remember that. The truth stands regardless of whether or not I favor that truth or whether it favors my interests, I guess you could say. 
and Christian universalists who believe in the ultimate salvation of Hitler would say that when Hitler is finally saved, finally reconciled and fully repentant, that he will not in any way resemble the, the Hitler that, that we knew during uh, World War II. And in the same way, uh, many of us will have different have different perspectives and different attitudes once we are fully reconciled to what the the you know the views that we uh, that we have right now. Yeah, this is a scarecrow I saw recently in an episode with Mike Winger. I think it was Alyssa Childers, where Mike Winger he, his argument against universalism was appalling. He says something along the lines of how universalism teaches that there's going to be uh, murderers and adulterers and child rapists in heaven. Can I say that just absolutely false and uncharitable? That's not the case whatsoever. And if you believe the Christian story, if, if, if that's true, then even on Mike's view, there's going to be lots of child rapists and murderers in heaven, right? If, if that's how Mike want to play the game. But of course, we believe that people in heaven are going to be just as perfect as God's son, holy son, Jesus Christ, right? To see Adolf Hitler will be essentially to see God in a sense. Like Jacob said upon seeing Esau, seeing you is seeing the face of God. And this person will be so transformed by the Holy Spirit, by the inner working of sanctification, that this person will be made holy. He will not be like what he was in his former life in his deeds of wickedness. So I'm, I'm very concerned. You're right, David. When in an attempt to distance people from Christian universal, people will make arguments such as this, is that heaven will be uh, that there will be rapists and murderers in heaven. That's just simply not true whatsoever. And I hope that we can move beyond those scarecrows. All right, let's go to another objection. Strobel recognizes that in Colossians 1.16, Christ is said to have been the agent through whom all things were created, and that then in Colossians 1.20, he is called the agent through whom all things are to be reconciled. Paul Copan responds, you have to keep reading to get the full picture. Paul goes on to say in verse 23, now he has reconciled you if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. So there's a condition there. We see something similar in Romans 5, just as all in Adam fall, so all in Christ, the second Adam, are reconciled to God. But these aren't identical groups. To be an Adam, the old fallen humanity, is to face condemnation. To be part of the new humanity in Christ through faith is to experience redemption. Strobel then concludes, you can't disconnect these texts from what Paul says elsewhere, that some will end up shut out from the presence of the Lord, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, or that those who preach a false gospel are under God's curse, Galatians 1, 8 to 9. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack here. I mean, first of all, Copan and Strobel, I know this is a popular work, so they can't get really deep into the nitty-gritty exegesis of this text, but they completely ignore concepts such as eternal justification uh, that's prominent among, again, many Calvinists, uh, ignoring that whatsoever. And this is this is very common to focus on verse 20, which talks about continuing in your faith. And so um, I think it's important that we uh, play on that text a little bit. So, for example, just because the text says an if clause doesn't mean that there are some who don't meet that if clause. So, for example, if I was to say if you raise if I was to tell uh, my children, if you raise your hand, you shall get pizza. OK, just because I've established a condition doesn't mean that all won't meet that condition. So Paul Copan, even if I was to interpret this text as he does, he would still need to show that there's sufficient reason to believe that all won't meet this condition, that all won't continue in the faith. And he hasn't done that. He's merely cited a single proof text and then read his interpretation into the text. But I could say the same thing. I could say that um, 
if people will continue in their faith, they will be saved. All people will continue in their faith. Therefore, all will be saved. So Paul Copan has to contest the second premise, and he hasn't done that. He just simply cited a text. And so I'd like to point that out uh, in regards to verse 20. Also, there's a question of translation, um, as you are well aware of in your previous episode that I watched, of whether or not to translate uh, the Greek uh, into the word sense in English or the word if. So should the text read uh, that if you continue in your faith or since you continue in your faith? Uh, many more questions I would have there on Copan's interpretation of Colossians. I also commonly see this, the appeal to 2 Thessalonians 1 9. Uh, it's getting a bit old. I'm getting tired of it wherever I read that. It's, it's just obvious that traditionalists cannot find their reading in the Pauline text. So it's amazing that the only text they really appeal to in Paul are contested texts. That is, texts that scholars aren't sure of whether or not they're even Pauline, per se, authored by Paul, or whether they're pseudo-Pauline, there's a different author. Now, let's just assume that Paul was the author of all 13 epistles. There's nothing in 2 Thessalonians 1.9 that supports the traditionalist view. First of all, I've talked to many annihilationists on this text, too. They often quote this text. And even prominent annihilationists like Chris Day don't think that this text supports annihilationism. Now, why is that? Well, let's say that you were to hold a preterist view, which I'm not uh, sure if your listeners are all that familiar with preterism, but preterism believes that many of the statements, uh, eschatological statements that Christ makes or that the apostles make uh, were fulfilled in the first century or centuries. So I think this could be the case with 2 Thessalonians 1.9, uh, as Andrew Perriman points out. What Paul is doing is he's talking to a specific community. He's not talking to the American community. He's talking to the Thessalonican community. And they're suffering. But Christ tells them, don't you worry. Christ will alleviate you. Right? He will come with the angels and he will punish those who are afflicting you, the evildoers. Well, we'd have to ask, well, who are afflicting the Thessalonican community? Now, there could be several possible answers. It could be the Jewish community. Well, we know that at that time there was animosity between many Jews and Christians, and uh, many Jews stirred up the Romans against the Christians, or so we are told. And so it could be the case that with the destruction of the temple, with the destruction of the Jewish system, Judaism began to lose its power and its influence to afflict Christian communities. They didn't have the ear of the emperor anymore, per se. And it's in that moment that God repays the evildoers. As Paul says, wrath has come upon them at last, talking about the Jews who are hindering the gospel being preached to the Gentiles. So that's one way of interpreting. Another way could be to say that, well, perhaps these are the Romans themselves. Uh, these are the Gentile Romans who are afflicting the Thessalonican community. Well, we know that with the Huns, the Visigoths, the Vandals, with the other barbarians, that when they swept through the Roman population, they repaid in kind. Okay, What were these people doing? to the Thessalonican uh, community. Well, they were doing temporal evils to them, temporal harms. And we see in the Old Testament that temporal harms are responded with by temporal harms. For example, the Babylonians who smashed the babies of Israelite infants, well, they will have their babies smashed, right? We, we see this being constantly in the Old Testament where it's, it's like for like, tit for tat, retribution. And if that's to be the case, well, then what would be a like for like response to, let's say, killings performed by the Romans against Christians. What will be killings performed against the Romans by others? And this seems to be exactly what happens in later centuries. So there are many scholars who believe that if you examine Second Thessalonians in its entirety, not just a single verse or three verses, this seems to point to an early fulfillment. But perhaps 
is pointing to the second coming of Christ himself. Well, if this was to be the case, it's just saying that when Christ returns, he's going to kill evildoers. That's it. I mean, we, we know that there's going to be, after Christ kills evildoers, we know that there's going to be a resurrection. We know there's going to be a final judgment, if one believes in opportunities at a final judgment. That's not the last word on evildoers. It's just saying that he's going to kill them. This is language that we find in Isaiah as well. And if, it's really helpful if your listeners compare uh, the book of Isaiah, certain chapters, uh, specifically between chapter 60 and 66, to this passage in Thessalonians. This does seem like Paul is strong on this passage. And if that is so, all this passage is saying that when Christ returns, he's going to kill evildoers. That's another interpretation. A final one that I can think of that comes to mind is how to interpret that um, that language about everlasting destruction. Well, it can't just mean age-abiding destruction, right? Like It can just mean a, a ruin that lasts for a while. And if Paul can talk about, in his other epistles, a mystery that is age-abiding, but that is ultimately disclosed, then I don't see why you can't have an age-abiding destruction that is ultimately undone. For example, we know that death must precede resurrection. It's, we can't have a resurrection unless there was death. And likewise, uh, we know in the that Origen, his commentaries, talks about cities that were formerly destroyed and then were restored. And so it could be that destruction is a precondition for restoration, so that the destruction of these individuals mentioned in Thessalonians is by no means a hindrance to their final restoration. When I talked with David Bentley Hart about this text, he said that 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 really when you look when he looked at it in the original Greek, it looked like what was going on was there was a pres there was a judgment that was coming from the presence of the Lord toward the evildoers in Second Thessalonians. And so this is just another example of where you're kind of seeing in the text, in the English translation of the text, there are decisions that are being made that can uh, sort of move the interpretation one direction, um, one direction or another. Another thing that uh, I wondered, I wanted to ask you about is that it seems like in in evangelicalism that there is this, on the one hand, the message you're saved by faith, but then on the other hand, there's all these conditions, and by the time you pile up all the conditions that could possibly be piled up and you can say, well, you're saved by faith, but then these conditions, if you continue to establish and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. So basically, and there's a lot of talk that, that Copan and Strobel make about taking the narrow path and those types of things. You, if, you, if you start putting all that together and pulling text from certain places, you can end up making so many conditions that a person could, could accept Jesus but then after hearing all the conditions, think that even after accepting him and putting my faith in him, I have a very, very narrow chance of finally, quote, making it into heaven. Mm. Yeah, I think this really comes out in uh, Tom Schreiner's work and how it's influenced people in the sermons of Jonathan Edwards and Calvinist ranks is the idea of perseverance is that perseverance is also a necessary condition for salvation, that you'll only be saved if you persevere to the end. So it's not just that you have to have faith, it's that you have to be faithful for the duration of your life. And that puts severe pressure on people where for many people, it almost seems like faith becomes a work and that it requires uh, it requires duration and intensity, right? Like, do you really believe? Do you really have faith? Like, what does that even mean? Um, and so that's the intensity of faith. And there's duration. Did you doubt it for a second? You know, did you doubt it for more than a second? You better repent. You better go to the priest. You better perform penance. 
And it becomes ultimately very hopeless. And I think what's happened is that we have for a long time until I'm very grateful for the work of Tom Wright and uh, people from the New Perspective have underestimated how subversive faith is, is that faith is by its nature meant to be inclusive. Because what it appeared to be prior um, to this time was that Gentiles and Jews were distinguished by ethical boundaries and what Paul refers to as the works of the law. But when Paul's talking about faith, he said, he's showing how subversive faith is, is that, listen, you don't have to do the works of the law. You are a child of God by faith. Faith is how you're brought in. So faith is supposed to bring people together, supposed to include people. But evangelicals often use faith not to include people, but to isolate people, to exclude people, right? Instead of becoming, hey, all those who have faith will be saved, it becomes only those who have faith will be saved, right? And I'm very wary of that change of language and the change in the connotation of faith there. So I think that you are absolutely right in that regard. And I also want to point out that you're right. Copan does make a lot about um, 2 Thessalonians 1, I'm talking about being shut off from the presence of the Lord. But can I say, David, even, even if that was, right, the proper interpretation of the passage, so what? A universalist could say, well, that's the necessary means by which God draws a person to himself. By experiencing the severity of God, which is the opposite side of the coin of God's kindness, right, a person comes to the point where he realizes the self-destructiveness of his own sin and therefore is restored to God. So even if that was the interpretation of the text, that would not hinder a universalist view whatsoever. So not... Strobel and Copan have not shown anything in these texts that prohibits a view that is conducive to universal restoration. And then they also want to try to make Romans 5 as if it is talking uh, about, uh, well, there's there's this group that's in Adam and everybody's in that, and there's the group that's in Christ, but much fewer people are in that group. Uh, Speak a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. So as I told your listeners at the beginning of the show, it was Romans 5 that convinced me of Christian universalism. So the the logic doesn't work. Um, What translators have done over the years is that they have hidden certain things because they're presuppositions. Now we all, and this isn't, doesn't make them evil. We all have presuppositions and we should recognize that, right? There are those who acknowledge the presuppositions and there are are those who deny and lie about them. Um, And this is not just on the topic of Christian universalism, this goes beyond, as you probably talked to David Bentley hard about. Now, in terms of Romans 5, we do have this contrast between uh, Paul, uh, I'm sorry, between Jesus and Adam in terms of how they affect the human race. I find this remarkable. Now, we're going to see that in terms of bringing sin to every individual condemnation, Adam succeeds in the case of every human being, unless you're Roman Catholic, right, and you have a, a view, certain view of the Virgin Mary. But I don't think that many of your listeners will agree with that view. And so Adam succeeds in doing that. Whereas Christ, on the other hand, fails. Right? Christ, Christ sought to bring righteousness and life to every individual. But alas, you know, he gave it a good, good shot. You know, have another go, Jesus. Was, you know, it's a good effort. You know, this is this is incredible. So God comes in the flesh, uh, and this creature of the dust has a greater impact on the course of every individual. <laughs> Then does Jesus Christ. Um, this brings me back to something that I thought about earlier during your show, David, is where um, I saw earlier in the book, uh, Paul Copan made the statement. Let's see if I can find it. He says on page 170 through 71, the fact that the righteousness 
will, uh, that fact that the righteous will dwell in the new heaven and the new earth, according to 2 Peter 3.13, is sufficient indication that good has triumphed over evil. That is, God has won the final victory. I don't believe that universal salvation or even the eradication of all evildoers is a requirement for a divine victory, end quote. So what Paul Copan is saying is that simply because the righteous are established in the new heaven and new earth is a sign of divine victory. Now, I don't think that's true at all. So I wonder what Paul Copan would say would need to happen for Satan to have a victory. So let's say that the traditional view of Satan is correct and that Satan wants souls to be eternally separated from God. Okay, that's Satan's goal. That's his mission. All right. So how many souls need to be damned in order for Satan to succeed? Now, a universalist might make the argument just one, just one soul, just one lost coin, just one lost sheep, just one lost son, right? It's, it's ultimately a defeat uh, in terms of the divine victory. But um, let's let's say uh, Copan's view, he has to believe that there are millions, if not billions of people separated from God. I fail to see how that's a victory. In fact, it reminds me of, of a certain Greek uh, ruler or general, his name is Pyrrhus, in which he, uh, went, he waged many battles, I believe it against the Romans, and many of these battles led to high casualties, right? Many dead soldiers. And so he, would, uh, he famously said that one, uh, one more such victory would destroy me, because okay? it wasn't really a victory, per se. Maybe it seemed like it was a strategic victory, right? Like in a war where you capture capital that's not really the economic heartbeat, of a nation is perhaps a political victory. So I would say that if God establishes some individuals in the new creation, then perhaps that's a political victory in the terms that, hey, God made people savable and some people were saved, right? I think that's absurd to view that as a true divine victory. So no, I don't agree with Copan on that. In terms of Romans 5, if you just understand that what Paul is doing in verses 17 through 19, he's drawing parallelisms here. This is often hidden by translators who interpret the text. They they remove the article of the and just say many. So so they say, you know, many die in Adam, many die in Christ. That's very deceitful there. As many translators and later commentators have pointed out, what's going on here is that the many, who is the all, right? Mm -hmm. The many is being contrasted with the one. What Paul is trying to do is he's trying to show the impact of the one on the many, right? So the impact of Adam on all and the impact of Christ on all. So it simply doesn't work. Now, let's just say that, again, we're assuming our opponent's premises. Let's assume, which is, which is not the case, that Paul Copan is right and that what, what is going on here is that Paul is contrasting two groups, those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ and and all those who are in Adam do this, and all those who are in Christ do that. Okay, that's not enough proof to say that all those in Adam won't be the same or identical to the, all those in Christ. It's like I, if I say, again, if I enter a room full of co-workers, and I say, all right, all those, you know, all those co-workers of mine who raise their hand shall receive pizza. <laughs> if they all raise their hand, not only are they all those co-workers of mine, but they're also all those who receive pizza. Okay, so just because you can contrast two groups doesn't mean those two groups cannot be identical one with another. So, for example, the terms believers and Christians, uh, Ronald Nash and many Calvinists will point out that those terms are identical, is that believers and Christians are referred to the same thing. 
And so it could be that those in Adam eventually encompass all those who are in Christ. So again, Paul Copan needs to provide proof, which he hasn't, that it will not eventually be that all those in Adam will eventually encompass all those in Christ. You mentioned Romans 5, 17 to 19, and then there's Romans 5, 20, of course, which is another interesting verse to contemplate because there in Romans 5, 20, the idea is that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And and if Paul's argument had been the reverse, it, it would seem if Paul was arguing, oh, well, those that were condemned are greater than those that will be saved, then it would seem like it would be the reverse. It would seem like where, uh, you know, where grace abounded, sin abounded all the more. No, yeah, I mean, this was a big concern of mine when I first started reading through Romans 5 on that fateful day. And I was thinking, man, this is incredible, isn't it? That Paul says that grace abounds much more. And yet it seems for the most part, the Christian tradition doesn't actually believe this. So, for example, William Lane Craig recently did an interview uh, that uh, I've been asked to respond to. And in an interview with Cameron Bertuzzi, someone whose show I appeared on, William Lane Craig said that universalists routinely underestimate the power of sin. And it seemed like Craig and those who make this argument just missed the whole point. You can make sin as despicable as you want, as powerful as you want. And we universalists just believe that grace is even more powerful. Grace is even more effective. Grace is even more persuasive. It's not that we have a low view of sin. It's that we have a high view of grace. And so I think that the emphasis is often wrongly placed, is that traditionalists often place the emphasis on the sin. And we want to place the emphasis on the grace. Okay, let's go on to the uh, next critique, the sixth one. Strobel recognized that the Bible sometimes uses the word all to describe those who are ultimately saved, as in 1 Timothy 2.6, which says Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all people, to which Copan responds, we need to examine that word all closely. For example, when the Gospel of Mark says all the people of Jerusalem flocked to be baptized by John, he doesn't mean every single individual was doing that. He simply meant a lot of people. In this case, Jesus did pay for all the sins of the world and made grace available to all sinners, but we have to accept that payment on our behalf if we're going to benefit from it. Not everyone will do that. You know, it's interesting, David. There comes a point when you realize that someone is so brilliant and the arguments that they're making are so poor that you wonder if they're honestly themselves convinced by it. And this were, this was one of my thoughts when I was reading through Copan's work. I mean, he should know better as someone who has written, uh, especially his work on the Old Testament, that it's really bad to compare how one author uses a word to how another author uses a word without any thought whatsoever for the genre, for the context, for any such textual indicators. So, for example, Colpan's appeal to Mark is very telling because Mark is a narrative. It's, an, it's written in narrative form. Paul is not writing a narrative. And uh, there's so many things that uh, Copan seems to miss here. For example, if I was in a narrative, when someone uses language of all the people in Jerusalem were going out, well, we understand that that's an exaggeration given the context, given the genre that it's written in. But this isn't always true. I mean, for example, if I was to take, let's say in seminary, I was to take a test and uh, my friends asked me after, uh, Andrew, how do you do on the test? I said, everyone in the class failed. 
Okay. Now, without any context whatsoever, without any clarification, it could quite possibly be true that everyone failed, right? But it would be the context, it would be additional information that would tell you that, well, Andrew's just exaggerating, right? When he says everyone, he's being hyperbolic. And Copan should know this in his work on the hyperbolic uh, statements found in the Old Testament, is that one has to examine the context. And certainly, one has contextual indicators in Mark that hyperbolic language is being used. But Copan doesn't appeal to any textual indicators to show that hyperbolic language is being used in 1 Timothy. It just doesn't. He just assumes it. Um, what this reminds me of is, is the common shtick that all men can mean all kinds of men, right? So when the Bible says all men, it really means all kinds of men. So this really got me thinking. Uh, I wonder how your listeners will take that. So recently there was um, the government raided Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago. Now, they were looking for certain files. Now, let, let's say that they demanded that Donald Trump hand over all his files, okay? And uh, the assistants, they scrounged around. They got a bunch of files, and they gave it off. And, and then the government later realized, these aren't all the files. They go back to Donald Trump. They said, we, we told you to give us all the files. They said, but he says, but I did. I mean, I gave you files from, that were from the red category, files from the green category, files from the blue category. So, so I gave you all kinds, you know, files of all kinds. So I, I really gave you all the files. <laughs> Nobody would accept this, right? Nobody. Because what's really going on here is that the word all in 1 Timothy 2.6 has been transmuted to mean some of all kinds of people. Right. So rather than saying all now, it really means some, some of all kinds. I mean, which it still doesn't make sense just because even if it did mean all kinds, it doesn't necessarily mean that all without distinction cannot also mean all without exception. So, for example, when Paul says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, does Copan really believe that this means all, just all kinds of people? have fallen short? Right. Where's no, this no, no I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that he would say, no, that that does mean all. <laughs> yes. Special pleading. Yeah. And we have had that says no one is righteous. And then it says, no, not one. Just to clarify, no one is righteous. No, not even one kind. No, it's saying not, not even one individual. Right. And so I want to know the justification that Paul, can, uh, Paul Copan has for this sort of special pleading. It reminds me of, you know, I love ice cream. Okay. Let's say I said, I love all kinds of ice cream. I could very well mean that I love all individual flavors of ice cream when I say that I love all kinds of ice cream. So you wouldn't know what I meant unless you had additional information. And Paul Copan doesn't do the hard work here, as he does in other works, to show that Paul doesn't mean this. That when Paul, even if he did mean just all kinds of men, that he doesn't mean all men without exception. And so those are some of my concerns with someone like Paul Copan who should already be familiar with these textual considerations, given his work in this field of hyperbole and linguistics. All right, let's go on to the next concern. Strobel recognizes Jesus' mission was to seek and save the lost, Luke 19.10. Strobel then asks, if some were actually left behind, did he fail? Copan responds, no, he didn't consider it to be a failure just because there would be those who refused to take the narrow road. Jesus acknowledged that the 11 disciples the Father had given to him were preserved, even though the son of perdition, Judas, didn't truly belong to Jesus, John 17, 12. At the cross, Jesus completed his mission. It is finished, John 19, 30. Isaiah 53 says, God would see the anguished death of his suffering servant as an atoning work that would justify many, Isaiah 53, 11, even if not all would embrace the Messiah. 
Jesus identified with us in life and death in order to save those who would choose the narrow path. Think of the parable of the prodigal son, he added. Jesus leaves his hearers with this implicit challenge. Will we go inside to celebrate with the repentant sinner, or will we stay outside as the self-righteous older brother? God doesn't cancel the celebration just because there are some who don't want to go inside. Why should God defer to the naysayers over the willing participants? It's up to humans to say yes or no to God's initiating grace. Jesus' very teaching assumes that some will embrace him while others will not, a point that the parable of the four soils makes in Matthew 13. So how would you respond to that? Yeah, so um, again, I'm surprised when it comes to linguistic objections that Copan raises, given his study uh, of linguistics uh, and apologetics. So he should know better. He should know that the word many can mean all, as we just saw in Romans chapter 5. There are many examples of this throughout the Bible when many means just that. Many can mean um, all. Um, as far as the story of the prodigal son, I find this very interesting because at no point in the parable does the father leave his son in the outer darkness. He stays there with his son and invites his son in. And this will come out when, when Paul Copan addresses the concern about uh, post-mortem repentance, right, in which he tends to not take a side on this issue. But it seems like the father does take a side. The father goes out to the older brother and sits there with him. And he doesn't, the story never says, and then he enters the party, leaving his son with the door shut. <laughs> that, that interpolation has not yet been found by textual critics. He is right, though, to uh, point out the relevance of Isaiah 53. I have often done this. Um, and it's ironic, too, that he brings up the prodigal uh, son, because I often see Isaiah 53 as being conjoined to the story of the prodigal son, the lost sheep, because I think of it this way. Um, Isaiah 53 says that the that the suffering servant shall see out of the travail of his soul and be satisfied, right? He will be satisfied out of uh, what he has accomplished through his redemptive work. So that got me thinking, okay, so what would it take for the suffering servant to be satisfied? Would 99 sheep do the trick? <laughs> well, no. The, the shepherd goes out and searches. And he doesn't say because the sheep was rather plump sheep, because the sheep had golden fleece. There is no, there is no quality, special quality of the sheep that separates it apart from other sheep that makes the shepherd go out and look for it. It's simply because it's a sheep owned by the shepherd. It belongs to his flock. And so he goes out and he doesn't stop until he's found it. And then when he brings it back, there is great rejoicing. So the rejoicing, the satisfaction only comes when the last part is restored to the flock. And the same goes with the story of the prodigal son, is that having one son home is not enough. And every parent should know this, is that, how much more worthy or how much uh, more worth does a son have in the eyes of a father than a sheep does? And Jesus, he, he seems to draw this parallel as well. He says, you know, the father cares for the state of the sparrows that fall. But how much more worth uh, do you have in your father's eyes than a sparrow? And so that got me thinking, well, if the suffering servant shall be satisfied, and if it takes a hundred sheep to satisfy him, then it's purely logical, isn't it? That if he's going to be satisfied, he will recuperate all 100 sheep. So it's quite interesting that the parallel that I drew, Copan also draw, although Elbit with a different conclusion. And he does mention this narrow path uh, passage again. And, and to me, well, that's a passage out of the Sermon on the Mountain. Jesus is describing uh, this way that leads to life and the way that leads to destruction and the way that leads to life is narrow, loving your enemies, doing good to those who persecute you. Well, this is a, a very 
narrow way. And he says, well, the opposite of that would be uh, hating your enemies and doing violence. And he says, well, that's the way that actually leads to destruction. And if you look at the verbs there, they're all in the present tense. And so he's saying what's happening is that very few are taking this hard path of loving your enemy and, and you know, not doing, not doing violence. He said, but that's actually the path that leads to life. And the, and the other path is the path that leads to destruction. And then this all gets played out historically within the, within, within that generation. And, uh, that really, that really helped me to see that, that passage better. Yeah. Uh, this reminds me is that it's often exact an accusation that's leveled against universalists that you're proof texting. When actually I found in my own studies that the traditionalists are often the one who are actually proof texting. So they'll just rip a verse or two out of its context and just disregard the entire context. So you're absolutely right. I very much enjoyed that part in your book, actually, when you focus on the present tense uh, verbs there in Matthew 7. Brian Zond also pointed out to me that if you put Matthew 7, 13 through 14 in its context, it is Jesus expounding on the implications of the golden rule. If you look at the section in which those uh, two verses, Matthew 7, 13 through 14, appear, the, the subtitle of the section is the golden rule, in which Jesus says, you know, you should do unto others as you would have done unto you. And then he goes to, on to expound on it like any good preacher does. He just doesn't leave it where it is. And so Matthew 7, in a narrow way, is talking about those who follow the golden rule, right? There are few people who follow the golden rule. Few people do it. But those who do, you will find life not just in the future, now. Like Jesus was very much focused on how one lives now. And it's a shame that we try to read, you know, post-mortem face into every statement that he makes. But I can tell you that this is very sage wisdom. If we look at the life of someone like Mother Teresa and we compare them to someone like Adolf Hitler, Mother Teresa, I think we could all say, more so treated her neighbor as herself, right? And she, it was a life of hardship. It was by no means easy. And yet if someone was to look at the life, we'd say, now that is a beautiful life. That is a life worth living. That's a life well lived. <clears throat> On the other hand, Adolf Hitler, who by no means loved his neighbor as himself, his life ultimately did lead to destruction, right? Self-destruction at that rate. And so they serve as a perfect example of what Jesus means when he's talking about the golden rule and its implications found in the narrow way. So that was a game changer for me when I realized that those verses are not talking about heaven and hell, but they're talking about how we live our life in accordance with the golden rule in this present age. And another one he mentions is the parable of the four soils, and I got to thinking about about that one. And then there is, and the there is that hard packed soil that can't that can't receive the seed because it's consumed with the worries and the and the pleasures and the anxieties of life. I got to thinking about that. That's kind of like the rich young ruler that Jesus encounters, who he can't receive the kingdom because he's so tangled up in his own in his own wealth. And then the disciples get get upset and they say, well, if he can't be saved, who can be saved? And then Jesus says, well, with people, it's impossible, but not with God for all things are possible with God. So you just keep thinking about that. Well, so it, it turns out that even the hard packed soil, God can't even save the hard packed soil. It's just, it's just a mindset that I found that once, once you get into it, it keeps you thinking about like a passage of the four soils that doesn't just shut everything down. It makes you start thinking more and then doesn't take very long that you find an example of Jesus encountering somebody who couldn't receive the seed, the good, the, the good news about the kingdom of God. 
But then who also turned around and said, who loved him and said, implied that his salvation was possible because with God, all things are possible. Yeah, I find it really interesting that yesterday, it was a few days ago, like I said, William Lane Craig did an episode on divine omnipotence and what divine omnipotence means. Well, when I, when I think of divine omnipotence, I think of that passage where he says, all things are possible for God. Now, in the context when he's describing omnipotence, he's describing the context of salvation. It is specifically salvific. Yes. Uh, it's, it's what he's talking about in regards to this individual, the rich young ruler. So I, I find that remarkable, uh, David. I, I think you do as well. All right. Um, an eighth concern. Strobel quotes the New Testament scholar William Barclay, who said, if one man remains outside the love of God at the end of time, it means that that one man has defeated the love of God, and that is impossible. Copan responds, but we can't ignore the many scriptures that indicate some will have their own way and get their divorce from God despite his best efforts. God doesn't force his love on his people. June 21 reminds us, keep yourself in God's love. That suggests that we can remove ourselves from God's loving influence. If God's undefeatable sovereignty means that all will be saved, how is this accomplished since it's up to human beings whether to accept or reject God's initiating grace? We routinely read in Scripture that God does his utmost to reach people only to be rebuffed. God actually appears exasperated at the rebellion of his people. For example, in the parable of the vineyard in Isaiah 5, when Israel produces bad fruit, God asks, What more could have been done for my vineyard, that is Israel, than I have done for it? In Matthew 23, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, longing to gather the city as a hen gathers her chicks. But Jerusalem refused. In Acts 7.51, before he was stoned, Stephen accuses his stiff-necked persecutors of always resisting the Holy Spirit. For stubborn rebels, the more God pours out his grace, the more they want to flee. They want to find happiness on their own terms. How would you respond to that? So, yeah, I mean, there's several ways of responding to this. The first thing is, again, it could be flipped on its head. Uh, we could have a situation where uh, Copan is the one who, at, who asks or who states that, hey, we can't ignore the uh, main scriptures that indicate that God's going to let people go their own way. And then I could say, well, but, you know, also we can't ignore those many scriptures that indicate that many, that all people will be saved and that all people cannot resist God forever. And so we could just flip Copan's premises on its own head. I also think that Copan is working backwards here. What Copan is doing is he's starting with philosophical concerns and then moving to scripture, right? It seems like he's starting with this assumption of free will and then saying, well, free will means that there's indeterminacy, which means that we can't be confident that all be saved. But again, this is more a question of foreknowledge. If God knows that all will be saved, that's not a statement of fatalism, right? It, it just means that all will be saved. It doesn't mean all must be saved. It just means that all will be saved. It's like prophecy. If God was to say that tomorrow David will go to food lion, right? It's not saying that it's not within David's power to not bring that about. What is, in other words, if if David doesn't go to food lion, God wouldn't have known that would have happened. Okay, it's that God knew what David would do, and that is how he's able to know the future. And so, if God knows that all will be saved, and He has relayed that to us then what Copan says is beside the point. I think what Copan is doing is he's arguing against fatalism. It is saying a will equals a must. And I, I noticed this before in his work is he's not a Calvinist. I believe he's a Molinist. And being a Molinist, he should know better. He should know that certainty is not the same as necessity. And so if God is certain that all persons will, will be saved, it doesn't mean 
that all must be saved or that's equal with fatalism. And so I think that Paul Copan needs to recognize that, that he needs to address the concerns that universalists have with his interpretation of passages like Romans 5. If Romans 5 says that all will be saved, this is, again, not a statement of fatalism. It's a statement of certainty, not necessity. So that's one of my concerns. I, I don't agree with his philosophical presuppositions there. But I also don't agree with the language of force. Or like God's not going to force someone to love him. Uh, this almost sounds mechanical in nature. And it's often used against universalists and many Calvinists. God doesn't force someone. Well, we're not saying that God forces somebody. Take, for example, the words of C.S. Lewis. When C.S. Lewis famously wrote in The Problem of Pain, quote, I willingly believe that the damned are in one sense successful, rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. So what is most ironic is that in Lewis's description of his own conversion, Lewis confessed, quote, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. A prodigal who was brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. The words compelle entrare, compel them to come in, have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them. But properly understood, they plumb the death of the divine mercy. His compulsion is our liberation. Yeah, isn't that amazing <laughs> yeah. that, that C.S. Lewis wrote both those things, that he both said the doors can potentially be locked? from the inside forever, but then he also said that as well. <laughs> oh, it's, it's remarkable. What's even more interesting is that he titled the chapter of his conversion story, Checkmate. And in that chapter, he observes both that, quote, before God closed in on me, I was in fact offered what now appears a moment of holy free choice. And I say I chose, yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. You could argue that I was not a free agent, but I am more inclined to think that this came nearer to being a perfectly free act than most that I have ever done. Necessity may not be the opposite of freedom. So how interesting is it that Lewis described the freedom he experienced in his conversion far differently from that of the lost experience in damnation? He goes on, uh, this is Thomas Talbot commenting on Lewis's statements. Talbot asks, quote, if God's mercy can eventually compel one prodigal to submit to him freely, why can it not likewise do the same for every other prodigal as well? So Paul Copan, he sets forth C.S. Lewis um, in the two chapters that um, Strobel dedicates to hell as a prime example of a free will theist. And yet Lewis himself recognized that God's compulsion is not at odds with our liberation. But there's a bigger concern that I have here with Paul Copan's statement, and that's the concern of blasphemy. And we should take this charge very seriously. When Paul Copan stated this, it reminded me of Ron Highfield's contribution to Four Views in Divine Providence, in which Highfield writes this, quote, No text confesses God cannot do all things, or God does not know all things, or God cannot work out all things in conformity with his will. Can you imagine a canonical psalm or a Christian hymn saying, quote, The Lord, we praise you for you are greater than any other being. You can do all things that are under your control. And when your plans fail, it is never your fault. We extol you for doing what you can with, with uh, what you have at your disposal. We give you thanks for doing your best to protect us. We know that you wish us well and will do what you can to help us achieve eternal life. Praise to your name. No, I don't hear this kind of praise in scripture. And so... What I believe is going on here is Paul Copan is ultimately leveling a vote of no confidence in the infinite intelligence and resourcefulness of the Almighty 
with his view eventually entailing that, as um, has been said in The Problem of Hell by Eric Raytan, quote, in God's war against sin in the souls of the damned, God confronts ultimate defeat. Despite all of his infinite resources, despite infinite time in which to work, despite his perfect knowledge of every nuance of the souls of the damned, despite his unrelenting love, his efforts will be for naught. At least in some human souls, sin will prove more powerful than God. This seems an unavoidable implication of Paul Copan's view and strike me as verging on blasphemy. Well, I thought it was interesting, too, that Copan seems to be quoting these passages which talk about Israel failing and not doing what it's supposed to do, as if that's the end of the story for Israel. Okay, so, so God says, I did what I could do for Israel, but that's all I could do which seems a little different attitude than the Apostle Paul. No, you're, you know. you're absolutely right. Yeah. Like where Romans 11, for example, where Paul says that all Israel will be saved. And it's ironic that you bring that, David, because last night I spent much of my time in my edits looking through Romans 9 through 11 and exegeting passages and finding footnotes. And, <laughs> and the, the suggestion that uh, some people make is that, well, by all Israel, if we appeal to some sources outside of Paul, all Israel can reference most Israel, you know, some of Israel, but not actually every Israelite. So just because that's what it can mean outside of Paul doesn't mean that's how Paul is using it. For example, the Bible in the, the New Testament authors seem to use the, the term spirit of God to refer to a personal, to a person, right? Now, that's not how the Jewish authors of Paul's day refer to the Holy Spirit. They refer to the Holy Spirit as perhaps the presence of God or the power of God, but but not as a, a person, and so simply because you can find another example where someone uses the term does not mean that both are assuming the same definition of that term. And so we'd have to examine how Paul uses the term all Israel within the context of Romans 9 through 11. And the logic is inescapable. <laughs> Paul would be a wretched man indeed. If yet This may really made me think. Paul would be a wretched man indeed if yet one of his fellow Israelites was separated from God. So how much more wretched would Christ be <laughs> for the reconciliation of his creatures? When I interviewed Douglas Campbell, he said that Paul is an explicit universalist when it comes to Israel. So, you know, if, if you don't have to wonder at all about how much of Israel Paul thought would be saved. And so I just thought that was interesting, that, that tension there between seems like Copan is saying, well, you know, God's going to look at Israel and say, well, I, you know, I did what I could do with it. But that boy, were, they sure were stiff necked. So I uh, just so God just going to kind of throw up his hands. Okay, here's a ninth um, concern. Strobel recognizes that in Philippians 2, 10 through 11, it says, every knee should bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. He then puts the question to Copan. Doesn't this suggest that everyone will eventually come to faith? Copan responds, but will they bow willingly? Paul is citing Isaiah 45, 23 there, and he's aware that not all bowing before God springs from humble, repentant hearts. God's defeated foes will bow before him in shameful, reluctant acknowledgement that he is Lord, Zephaniah 2.11. Just a few chapters later, Isaiah 49.23 indicates that some will bow down before God and lick the dust at his feet. His enemies exhibit a feigned obedience. In Psalm 81.15, the psalmist says, those who hate the Lord would pretend to obey him, and their time of punishment would be forever. So, yeah, there, there are several ways in which traditionalists often attempt to circumnavigate a universalist interpretation of Philippians chapter 2. Uh, the first is usually to brush aside the supposition that Paul's statement is a prophetic pronouncement of what shall happen, uh, instead of 
Paul's longing for what should happen. So people like Chris Date, for example, claim that Paul is not say, uh, here saying that all people will bow. He's saying that this is what should happen, that all people should do this, but in fact, all people won't do that. So there are two major problems with this interpretation. Firstly, neither Isaiah 45 nor Romans 14 possess any kind of they should bow, but won't. Instead, they emphatically affirm that every knee will bow. Secondly, the should in Philippians 2.10 is an aorist subjunctive, a definite outcome that will come to pass because of a prior stated action, and thus should not be understood as you ought to bow, but you might not. Rather, it means you shall bow. So that's the... That's the first interpretation that traditionalists often attempt to give. The second, as you noted, is the idea that these people who are bowing is they're doing so forcibly, right? Their confession is motivated more so out of trepidation than it is of joy. So uh, to be, I want to be charitable, but I consider this to be a really stupid understanding of this text. Firstly, compto here used for bow, according to Vine, is used for religious veneration. You find this in Romans 11.4, 14.11, and Ephesians 3.14. On the other hand, compto, used in Romans 11.10, signifies to bend by compulsory force. Okay, These are not the same two words being used. compto is not being here used in Philippians 2. Furthermore, whereas the ESV and other translations would attempt to render the verse as suggesting the confessors pay homage at the name of Jesus, so that if the text is rendered at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, Jen Eckerty and others have noted that it's more properly translated in the name of Jesus. Now, why wouldn't they want to translate this as in the name of Jesus and instead as at the name of Jesus? Well, because saying in implies, implies personal relationship. So, for example, when Christ says, we're two or more gathered in my, in my name, I am there. So in my name in this instance implies personal relationship, personal intimacy. And so if we should understand this passage to be translated not as people bowing at the name, but in the name, this raises a great concern for people like Paul Copan, who want to take the route that he attempts to take. Um, additionally, the word that is used of praise, if I'm not mistaken, is exomilohimai, which means to praise joyfully, right? To praise thankfully. I mean, th these people are jubilant. These people are thankful for what God has done. And this is remarkable because this makes me think of people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, being jubilant in the presence of God, dancing in front of him, joyful and thankful for what God has done. And that this should be the proper interpretation of Exumulohimon can be seen by Philippians 3.21's reference to God's power that, quote, enables him even to subject all things to himself, end quote. What's telling us that the words even to imply some sort of impressive ability on the part of God. I fail to see how forced submission is at all impressive. Yet a God who is able to melt even the hardest of hearts, to bring Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins to the point of ecstatic, jubilant worship, surely only God can do such a thing. Another route that people try to take is they say, well, in Paul's appealing to Isaiah 45, right? In Isaiah 45, it talks about people who were destroyed, right? They, in Isaiah 66, they go out and they see the corpses of those who did not repent. So therefore, Paul cannot be universalist. Well, that's just silly. Because what Paul does in Philippians 2 is he expands the range of those who bow. He says those in heaven, on earth, and he includes those under the earth. He goes above and beyond the call of duty. Mm -hmm. um, and so we must be careful to recognize that, that it's not just the context of Isaiah 45 that matters. It is Paul's context that um, matters as well. And we have to understand 
how Paul interpreted Isaiah 45 in light of his theology. And it seems like he expands the implications of Isaiah's prophecy to include all creatures in heaven on earth. Now, another argument that people could make, like Paul Copansky is making, is that they'll say, well, in Isaiah, there's the idea of people being shamed, right? They'll, they'll come before God shamed. Well, can I tell you that's what happened in my conversion? Okay, that's the case for many people in the conversion. That's a way of God bringing people to themselves, is the people who are ashamed, uh, Isaiah points out, is they were idolaters, right? They trusted in their idols to protect them, their false gods to protect them. And these gods were proved to be empty of such protection, of such preservation. And so that is the sense in which these people were shamed, these idolaters, and they were brought before God in humble surrender. It's not the idea that God eternally torments or annihilates them. That's completely foreign from the text. And so, again, this just seems to be a desperate attempt of Paul Copan, which is usual of uh, people of his ilk in the traditionalist tradition, to escape the universalist implications of Philippians 2, which I believe to be one of the most clear texts of universal salvation. All right, let's go on to uh, kind of a final concern. Strobel asked Copan for concluding reasons that Christian universalism falls short biblically. He replied by saying, both the Old and New Testaments reveal the opposite of universalism. We see the contrast between the righteous and unrighteous in Psalms, Proverbs, and Daniel 12, 2, which talks about those awakening to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. In the New Testament, there's the judgment of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, or the simple contrast in John 3.16 between those who have eternal life and those who perish. In Revelation 13.8, we find a limited, unexpanding number of names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, without which, without which one cannot be in the presence of God. In Romans 9.3, Paul wished he could be condemned so that his Israelite brothers and sisters could be saved. Matthew 12.31-32 talks about the unpardonable sin that won't be forgiven in the life to come. When asked whether only a few would be saved, Jesus replied in Luke 13, 24, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to. None of these fit the universalist narrative. Um, yes, yeah, so what Paul Copan is trying to do here is called the gish strategy, or the gish tactic. It's what you do is you run through a bunch of objections to a view without considering the fact that there are more objections and greater objections to your own view. Uh, this strategy comes from an individual named Gish, who would often, when he would debate evolutionists, he would raise one objection after another objection after another objection in spitfire mode, because it's much easier to raise an objection than it is to adequately answer an objection. And this is a tactic I've seen Paul Copan, honestly, he, he does a lot, not just in the context of universalism, but also in his apologetical works uh, when he's dealing with other atheists and when he's dealing with critics of the Old Testament. It will take this method. And I can just say personally, as someone who's engaged in apologetics, people can see through this. <laughs> they understand that what you're doing is you're being really desperate and raising one objection to another because you're not being a careful scholar and examining the text and examining the words that are being used in the text and the context and the genre. You're just listing out a bunch of objections with your presuppositions in them. So this is a fallacy that Paul Copan should be aware of. How would he like it if, a, if someone like Greg Boyd who disagrees with Paul Copan's interpretation of the Old Testament, says the God of the Old Testament, or someone like Richard Dawkins, the God of the Old Testament is a detestable moral credence. I mean, he allows parents to bring their children before the elders and have them stoned to death. He makes sure that 
a girl who is raped has to marry her rapist. He commands genocide. And then they start listing texts, listing texts, listing texts. Knowing Paul Copan, he would probably say, well, we need to examine the context. We need to examine the language that is being used, you know, with linguistic scholarship on this. He wouldn't accept this strategy of just listing out objections. And if, if that's the case in his own private work, he should treat universalists with the same charity. Again, he fails to exhibit this charity, it seems, at least in this book. Now, the question is, do any of these texts convince uh, for the traditionalist interpretation? I think the answer is obviously no. I mean, for those of you who have not yet purchased uh, Dave's book, I mean, I have to ask why that is. I mean, all the proceeds go to a very hungry podcaster being David. <laughs> so go ahead and buy it because I, I absolutely love it. I think I've read it at least three times. And uh, well, I, read it. I, I, uh, I wrote it to be easy, easy to read. Uh, if, if you're looking for something to really uh, slow down your reading, then that's going to be David Bentley Hart's That All Shall Be Saved. Uh, maybe right. I, my, I, I thought of my book as an easy introduction to the topic and uh, an, an introduction that would work for a, a more detailed book like the one that you're writing, for instance. Okay, but let's, let's get back to what we're talking about. Yes, and uh, I just wanted to note, Dave, that I actually, someone asked me yesterday, said, you know, what's a good book to introduce someone to Christian universalism? And I recommended your book. I'm like, this is the best one, probably. <laughs> well, um, good. I, you know, as a minister, I'm not, I'm not uh, you know, some kind of high-level scholar, but in my position, I can understand what high-level scholars are doing. My job has been for years just talking to average people. So I wrote my book for the average person to kind of get it an idea of how this could all work together. So that pleases me very much. Yes. Now, now to examine these texts, let's take a few of them in turn. So I want to start with Luke 13, 24, which says, quote, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. I call this the one shut, always shut view, that when, when God <laughs> shuts the door, <laughs> no one cannot shut it. So, uh, so first of all, Paul Copain is not the only one who turns to this text. Um, I also saw this in Edward Fazer's um, article in reply to David Bentley Hart, where Fazer makes the same argument of, by appealing to this text is that there are those who will be outside. What's very interesting is that this text used to be cited to support the idea that many will be damned, Augustinian notion. But recently, Paul Helm, uh, in his contribution to essays on universalism, made the argument that this text actually doesn't have to mean that, that uh, the majority of people can still be saved. But that's here, neither here nor there. The point is, this question, uh, this statement was given in response to a question that was asked of Jesus by a fellow Jew. It was a Jew asking a Jew a question. And the Jew asked, um, he asked him, Lord, are those who are being saved you? So there are several things that are important to recognize there. First is the present tense. Those who are presently being saved, right? But what does he mean by saved? Okay, because the Bible, the word that is used for save in the Greek is used with many different connotations. It can be used for temporal healing. It can be used for uh, the gods saving a people from temporal destruction, whether it's from a foreign army or some disaster. It can be used even of what we think of redemptive salvation, right? So the term can be used in many different contexts. Uh, both phaser and Paul, uh, Paul Copan have given us no reason to think that this text is talking about eschatological salvation, that is, redemptive salvation. They simply assumed that reading, and there is no warrant for that whatsoever if someone is to look at the text. Because if someone looks at the chapter itself 
Jesus answers some other questions posed by Jews. They say, you know, there are these Jewish people who a tower fell on them, right? Or they, they were, Pontius Pilate killed them and mixed their blood with the sacrifices. And there's the question looming there, were these people more wicked than others? And Jesus tells them, I tell you, repent or this will likewise happen to you. Now, what is he not? he's not talking about hell. He's talking about Roman swords and towers falling and killing people. That's exactly what happened in the Roman siege of Jerusalem. Roman swords killed people, and the catapults destroyed the towers, uh, causing the rocks to fall on people. In fact, uh, Josephus talks about a saying that people had where they said the stone is coming. The stone would come, and it would obliterate a tower and kill all those inside. So it's very telling that Paul Copan, again, he wants to do the hard work when it comes to his own speciality in apologetics. But when it comes to answering universals, he sometimes just seems to shirk away from that. He doesn't want to examine what is meant by salvation. He doesn't want to examine the full context. He simply wants to provide a proof text, right? And so that's my concern with Luke 13, 24 in a nutshell. As far as Daniel 12, 2, it seems that Paul Copan, like many evangelicals, is unaware of critical scholarship on Daniel 12. For example, um, did Daniel write the full, all 12 chapters of Daniel? Did Daniel have any part in this? Was Daniel a real person? Um, there are many questions that come with Danielic scholarship. So I do think that this, uh, that the book of Daniel does go back to a figure known as Daniel. I think there is reason for believing it. However, there is question with the last chapters. So as any scholar who studied the book of Daniel knows, is that in the final chapters, there is predicted a, um, a great battle between, I think it's the Ptolemaics and the Seleucids. I could be wrong, but I think it's Antioch. I know it's that it's Antiochus Epiphanes. It, it's said that Antiochus shall die, right? He, he shall go on this conquest. He shall conquer these lands. Can I tell you that the lands that Daniel says that Antiochus shall conquer, he did not conquer. The battle that said, Daniel said shall be fought was never fought. Um, now, an open theist can answer for this. An open theist has warned to answer for this. But someone who thinks that God infallibly foreknows the future has a difficulty here because everything that was prophesied here did not come to pass. And so I don't understand why if, if, if we shouldn't accept this false prophecy, because we know that God cannot prophesy falsely, then why should we accept the implications of this false prophecy? Because that is exactly what Daniel 12 to, uh, says, because it says in those days. So, well, what are those days? Well, it's a reflection on the information that comes prior to that in the previous chapter. Is the days that are described in the previ uh, previous chapter. And notice that Daniel doesn't say that all shall be raised. He says that many shall be raised. So that people, even like Tom Wright, they question the idea of whether, in fact, this is talking about a physical resurrection. The Bible often uses resurrection to refer to things that are not just the eschatological resurrection. So, for example, Ezekiel talks about a valley of dry bones that God raises up. And this is supposed to be an image of God's restoration in the nation of Israel. Um, also, it is, I think, Simeon, who I think it's the Gospel of Luke who said that Jesus will be the cause for the rising and falling of many in Israel. Well, he's not talk, He's using resurrection imagery to talk about something else other than physical resurrection. And so there are some scholars who say that Daniel 12 may be doing just that, is it may be using resurrection imagery to talk about something other than literal physical resurrection. So there's that concern. What does Daniel mean by resurrection? What's this written by Daniel? Well, what does it mean by in those days? Will all be raised or will it just be many? Does Paul Copan address any of these concerns, or does he simply cite a passage? Well, he just simply cites a passage. And furthermore, let's say that he's right. Let's give him everything. 
Let's say that uh, Paul Copan is a futurist and believes the prophecies of Daniel will be fulfilled in the future, so they had nothing to do with Antiochus Epiphanes. Let's say that Daniel wrote this all, uh, and that those days is talking about the last day, the day of resurrection. Let's give him all that. Does his conclusion still follow that traditionalism is the correct view? Well, no. What he seems to be doing is he's paralyzing, uh, paralleling everlasting life and shame and everlasting contempt. The problem is the language of everlasting contempt or perpetual contempt is also used uh, by the prophet, I think it was Jeremiah, in reference to Israel, where God says, I'm going to bring upon you perpetual contempt. And yet we know from Paul that all Israel will be saved, and we know from Jeremiah that a new covenant is coming. Right? We know that Israel won't be estranged from God forever. So even though Jeremiah uses language of perpetual shame upon Israel, we find out that that shame will actually not be perpetual. And so, again, I just had these concerns with Paul Copan that he's not really doing the hard work. He's he's applying the gish tactic where you simply list out a bunch of objections, knowing that it takes more time to adequately address each objection than it does to list an objection. Well, about that Daniel passage, at least when I went to seminary, um, I learned about apocalyptic literature and that this is a genre. and that it was very present in the ancient world, but we're not much familiar with it. So if you're not familiar with apocalyptic literature, then you you don't really understand how to how to read it. So we run into this in the book of Revelation in the New Testament, in, in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel. Um, and But even if you go to the idea of everlasting life and everlasting contempt, well, once you understand that, that, that what's being contrasted there is what's coming in the coming age or the coming ages, then that helps you to um, put it in context. And then plus, once you move to the New Testament, then you're starting to see um, more confident hopes of a universal restoration. So I just, it, it, to me, it's just an example of where you're, you get convinced of of a certain point of view. So then you sort of go backwards and you just find it in all these different, different places in the book of revelation, the lamb's book of life that some people read that as, well, that's the end of the book of revelation. They don't continue on, um, to the final, final chapters of, of revelation and the idea of that gates will never be shut and this invitation that's be given being given. Could you say something about that? Sure. I think you hit on one thing that I noticed particularly with annihilationist, um, is the neglection uh, what's called progressive revelation. Um, and I don't think that evangelicals reject it because of the term progressive. I think it's the concept, the notion that revelation can become clearer in content, like clearer, uh, more uh, perspicuous over time, strikes us as just odd because we would say, well, that would imply that it was less clear before, or that there was some things that were not accurate, as accurate, or something like that before. And I think that evangelicals try to shy away from that. But it's just clear that the Bible is full of progressive revelation. Pauline theology is a prime example of what progressive revelation looks like. Now, as far as the Lamb's Book of Life, so this is another example of where you're citing a single verse or single passage without looking at the book as a whole, or particularly the ending, where what we see in the final chapters is that the kings of the earth and the nations enter into the new Jerusalem. Uh, now, 
the passage, uh, the relevant passage states that her gates shall never be shut, which seems to look back to Isaiah 60, which talks about the Jerusalem never having its gates shut. Now, some universalists will want to say, well, this is an argument for post-mortem repentance. Well, some traditions will want to say, well, actually, what this is arguing for is the idea of security, that gates are meant to keep people safe. But now that God has done away with his en enemies, the gates can be open because people are secure. Now, either interpretation can work for a universalist. Because what we want to focus on is the point that the kings of the earth specifically are entering in. Now, every single reference to the kings of the earth in Revelation uh, puts them as the bad guys. If you go through the text, they are always the bad guys. They side with the Antichrist. They persecute the Christians. They are evil through and through, bad to the bone, as one uh, musician would say. Now, they're the very ones who are entering into the city. And the leaves of uh, the fruit of the tree of life is said to be for the healing of the nations, which the nations are also the villains throughout uh, the narrative that we have in Revelation. I had one person, Annihilation, say to me, well, perhaps what's going on here is God's appointing um, out of the people who were saved from the nations kings. Well, that is not what John says. John doesn't say there's no indication that that is what is going on. He, he, there's no reference to that, this switch in terminology. Well, previously, when he meant kings of the earth, they were always the bad guy. But now, all of a sudden, without explanation, God appoints for the saved, um, those who are kings of the earth. There's a problem with this, too, is that the new Jerusalem already encompasses the saved, the elect, the redeemed, right? The, the saints. They are in the new Jerusalem. So all those who were saved out of the nations are already in the city, but the kings of the earth are from outside of the city, and they are coming in. So this interpretation doesn't make any sense, because it, it would be better for God to say, and of the people inside the city, God appointed you know, kings. But instead, it shows that there are these kings entering into the city and bringing their glory with them. And I think it's, um, it's important that we focus on that. Now, the idea that the Book of Life is a delimitation. Well, anybody who studied the Book of Life and its trends, whether it's in the Old Testament with Moses or in the Psalms, they know that it's a difficult subject because it can seem at times that someone's name can be removed from the Book of Life. And it can seem that some, oh, someone's name can be added to the Book of Life. And that's why uh, we have passages about taking away one's portion in the Book of Life. But I also appeal to the notion where it says that we shall receive a new name. And so I always had the question, so in the book of life, whose name will we find it? Will we, it be Abraham or Abram? <laughs> Sarai or Sarah? Whose name shall be in the book of life? And so it may be something like that the false self is unknown to God simply because it is a false self. I mean, sin is a negation. It's nothingness. But it is the true self that is known and is recorded in the book of life. So I would connect this with Jesus' words about depart from me, I never knew you. And I remember I thought about this and I thought, well, who does Jesus not know? <laughs> now, now this, I'm not claiming that this is um, a direct exegesis of the passage. I'm claiming this is uh, preaching of the passage and that Jesus, of course, being omniscient, knows everybody. But what he doesn't know is the false self, right? The thing that we concoct, the thing that we think is our true identity, and that has nothingness at its core, because evil is a negation, it is a privation. That is the thing that Jesus doesn't know. And Jesus can not just allow us to waltz into his presence. Rather, we must first experience the self-destructiveness of our sin, right, before we can appreciate being in the presence of God and being in relationship with him. It's the most loving thing that God can do is send that person away for a time. It's like 
if anybody has ever worked with children, I mean, when you have a child who acts out, you send them into timeout. I've often had this experience. You had that one child who's trying to ruin everybody's time. So what do you do? You put the child in timeout, but you don't say, and you shall sit here forever in anguish and torment and watch us have a good time, and we shall rejoice in your anguish and torment. No. You tell the child, listen, you can't act like this around the other children, all right? Trying to have a good time. What You can join the other children whenever you like. But first, you need to get rid of this bad attitude, right? You need to essentially get your act together, and then you can rejoin the party. So there's always the invitation to rejoin the party. So that is essentially what uh, we see here in with Jesus' um, teaching about the false self. And what we see here in the book of Revelation, where those who will be outside the city is. They have to first confront the false self, which is a terrifying thing, David, you know, isn't it? To have yes. to confront the false self. And... So that's one way of looking at it, of interpreting the book of life, is what the book of life might be saying is that if names can be added or taken away, then perhaps at some point when a person comes to faith, they can be added. Or it could mean that the person's true name has not yet been revealed to that person until that person comes to a point of faith, right, and receives God's grace. That could be interpretation. One final interpretation is a Bardian one, where the only name that is recorded in the book of life is Christ. Right? There's the whole notion of being elect in Christ. And so that it's, Christ is the only recorded name in the book of life. And when we come to faith, we are one with Christ. We are united to Christ. And so those are three plausible interpretations for what the book of life means, its implications. Paul Copan doesn't address any of them. Neither does he address the issue of the kings of the earth and the nations entering into the new Jerusalem. He simply cites a text and then moves on. This is dangerous. This is dangerous practice just in general. And I hope that in the future, Paul Copan, maybe he will hear some of these objections that are raised um, to his dealing with this issue, and that moving forward, he might be more charitable. Well, and you can make some of the same comments about the parable of the sheep and the goats. Uh, once you see that what's being talked, that everlasting, um, everlasting torment uh, could be understood, age-abiding correction. Mm-hmm. You know, depending on how you, how you look at that, can you tell us something about the sheep and the goats then? Sure. So what Paul Copan and others since the time of Augustine seem to have argued is that since the same Greek adjective is used to describe the punishment as a life, then they must both be of the same duration. But this is simply false. A case in point is Habakkuk. We're in the book of Habakkuk. Uh, the word everlasting is used to describe hills and mountains that are said to be a throne and are no more and the ways of God. And so the ways of God are said to endure, uh, to last permanently, whereas the mountains, which are described in the same adjective, are said to be overthrown. So the everlasting mountains are no more. And if we were to follow Paul Copan's logic, we'd have to say, well, since the same adjective is used of the ways of God and of the mountains, then God's ways have to be no more. But how silly is that? Because what an adjective does is it's dependent on the noun that it describes. So if I said that this is a large dog, I said this is a large skyscraper. What it means to be large for a dog is not the same as what it means to be large for a skyscraper. The adjective is dependent on the noun that describes. We'd also have to ask, is there sufficient warrant to believe outside of this passage that the life itself shall be truly everlasting? And we do have that warrant. We have passages, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, where we are said to be raised imperishable, incorruptible, and that death itself will be destroyed, will be defeated. Well, if death is no more, obviously we can't die right and so the life will be everlasting so we have sufficient warrant to say that the life is everlasting truly outside the passage the question is do we have the same for the punishment and we simply don't 
right? So as N.T. Wright and others have pointed out, this passage is probably better tr translated either as um, age-enduring punishment and age-enduring life, or as I prefer it, the life of the age to come and the punishment of the age to come. Now, simply because the life and the punishment occur in the age to come does not mean that they're the same duration. For example, tomorrow I will go to work and tomorrow I will eat breakfast. Now, simply because both occur tomorrow does not mean that both will be of the same duration. Likewise, simply because the punishment and the life occur in the age to come does not mean they will both be of the same duration in the age to come. Paul Copan addresses none of these concerns. He's not alone. William Lane Craig recently made the same mistake in his interview with Cameron Bertuzzi. He applied the same argument with no basis whatsoever for his linguistic appeal, and I think that needs to be done. Furthermore, uh, a lot of this could hinge also on the meaning of Colossus. So there is debate about what this term means. William Barclay once claimed that Colossus, in all extent uh, Greek secular literature, is used for remedial punishment. Later, it was found to be that that's not exactly accurate, although it could be a fair assessment to say that the majority of the times it is used, it is used of remedial punishment. Well, so remedial punishment is meant to restore a person. It, it, Colossus also used an agricultural term for pruning. So if the punishment is meant to re restore a person, it obviously can't be everlasting because a lesson that takes all eternity to teach <laughs> obviously is incapable of actually teaching the person the lesson. So uh, if this word is to have the connotation of a chastening, of a pruning, then obviously the word that is used for everlasting cannot mean what we think to be everlasting. Um, and so those are some reasons to doubt the implications that Paul Copan gives that since the same word is used for everlasting uh, punishment and everlasting uh, life, then they both have to imply the same duration. It is just simply false. And I would hope that in the future, more people like Copan and William Lane Craig can move past this language and argument. He also throws out uh, the concern about John 3.16, which seems to imply that those who don't believe in Jesus in this life will forever be rejected after death. Yes, this is incredible, isn't it? Where in the next verse, Jesus says, For God did not send us into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So Jesus' goal is to save the world, and the question is whether he does it. As you pointed out in your book, the verbs are, again, in the present tense, and it seems like Paul Copain and many others, they just, either they don't care for linguistic studies in this area, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? When it comes to their area of expertise, like Paul Copain in the Old Testament, he will care about the linguistic arguments. When it comes to dissing thousands of Christians who hold a particular view, he has no qualms whatsoever, it seems, with dissing linguistic arguments. And I think that he really needs to consider why he's okay with doing that. As far as John 3.16, let's say hypothetically he's right. Let's just say he's right, adopting his premises. This is, ad, um, this is, I think it's ad hominem argumentation where you take one's premises and you drive them to their conclusion. Um, so let's say that it's true that whoever doesn't believe in Christ shall perish. Now the question is, will they remain in the state of perishing? Right, <laughs> having perished. Jesus, for example, sends his followers out to the, those in Israel who have been lost, having been perished, have perished. I mean, these people perish. The father says to the prodigal son, he says, my son was lost, same word that's used for perish, but has been found, was dead, is now alive. He described the stage of the son as one of having been perished, of having been dead, and yet the son is able to be restored. It's just like in the case of physical, uh, physically having perished. Well, physically having perished is a necessary precondition of resurrection. In the same token, one could argue that spiritually having perished can be a precondition of restoration. And so 
just because one has perished doesn't mean that one can't be re restored. So even if we forego with the present tense verbs there, and we were to say, okay, Paul, there are people who can perish. That is not to say that they cannot themselves be restored. As the lost coin, the same word that is used for loss is also used for perish. The lost coin was found. The lost sheep was found because Christ is in the business of looking for what was lost, and he doesn't stop until he finds it. Well, we have been going for a good a good while now, and I, I think we should start to come be coming to a conclusion. And what I, what what impresses me about you is that you come out of a solid evangelical background. You've got training in how to think through uh, logical uh, arguments and presuppositions, and it was in that in all of that experience that you came to see that finally that the Christian universalist perspective was the one that brought together, you could, you could bring together scripture and reason and tradition and experience and put all of those together. So just in closing, what would you have to say to people who are, who are kind of having uh, maybe coming out or, or thinking uh, about an experience where they were raised in kind of like the evangelicalism that you were raised in and they're wondering what to do or where to go next? Yeah, so first of all, I'd say it's easy for someone who's coming out of a traditionalist background to diss the people who taught them traditionalism, the traditionalist view. And I'd say that it's probably a good witness to stray away from that to an extent, because in most cases, I can um, tell you from experience, people didn't know better who taught me the traditionalist view. They hadn't studied this. They'd been told this by somebody else. And so we need to be mindful of that, in that just as universalists have been charitable with us, right, when we were traditionalists, so we should be charitable as universalists with those who are still in the traditionalist um, field. Now, at the same time, for someone who is going back and forth on this issue, I've talked to some people who they're afraid of what uh, others might say about them, right? Which is quite interesting to me is that if I came out and I said, I, you know, I believe that um, God has ensured, you know, made it uh, made it possible that there are people who will be eternally tormented apart from them. People were like, okay, <laughs> you know, that's acceptable. But if I say, you know, I think that God's going to save all your toast. So I, Martin Luther, for me, he, I looked to him only in this regard, in that when he was being accused of straying from the tradition, he said that his consciousness is held fast to sacred scripture and pure reason. And I would hold this out to your listeners, is that that's what our consciousness is held fast to, sacred scripture and pure reason. It should not be that we should just willy-nilly disregard the tradition. The tradition has been in place for a reason. Right? Traditions don't become a, a tradition overnight. And so it just that we have no regard for the tradition whatsoever. But it means that the tradition isn't unassailable. It, it doesn't mean that it's above reproach. Okay, the, We should be norming. This is what I find rich to my Calvinist friends, is that many Calvinists say that we should be constantly reforming. Right, The church is always reforming in accordance with the Word of God. Well, that doesn't seem to be true. It just seems that the Reformed tradition reformed up to the point of Augustine and then stopped. Okay. <laughs> we can't, right? We can't. Uh, if we're to truly be reformers, we must be continually reforming upon our reflections of sacred scripture and pure reason. And so I can say for me personally, once I realized that I had no scriptural argument and no philosophical argument against universalism, I had to think, what is keeping me from universalism? And if I stand before God, is that a valid excuse? And for me, I didn't find it to be a valid excuse. I said, if this is what the scripture teaches, if this is what pure reason holds to, then I must hold to it as well. And so I would encourage people in that regard is stick with the scripture, stick with pure reason. Because sometimes I think any doubts that I have had 
don't come from those two. They come from the tradition. And I'll constantly, sometimes I'll think, how could they all have been wrong? But then what I have to do is have to remind myself, remember what pure reason says, remember what scripture says. And this isn't just for universalists, it's for a Christian. Because for Christians in general, many times they'll be reminded, you know that the majority of scientists or many scientists, all these well-known scientists, they reject you know Christianity, right? And so what are you going to do in that situation? Are you going to say, well, the majority has spoken, right? Or are you going to reflect on pure reason and look at the evidence and say, you know, we don't arrive at truth by counting noses, right? And it is my belief that what has been the tradition for now won't always be the tradition. I think we are seeing a change going on, especially here in the States and even in countries like Japan, when I talk to missionaries over there. So I think that it won't remain the traditional view for much longer. But when the tides change, we must be careful that the pendulum sort of swing to the other direction, so to speak, that we oppress those of the traditionalist view. Rather, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we must understand that this is an in-house conversation, which I didn't get the feeling from Paul Copan's work. When he described the annihilationist, he said, this is a secondary issue, right? It's not heretical. But when he described the university, he said, this is aberrant theology. I think that Paul Copan should seriously reflect upon the language that he uses, the charity that he uses and holds out to other Christians. It seems like he doesn't even consider us to be Christian. And I think that's very sub-Christian. I think that yeah, he if, does say he he does say in the book that you can be a legitimate Christian and hold to this view, but he also says you are an aberrant and dangerous yes. Christian. So it's a little bit of a mixed message there. It, it definitely is, and um, you know I don't take the pat on the back that he tries to give. It's like he tries to hold something out and take it back at the same time. So if he really wants to consider universalist genuine Christians, I think he should stay away from language that says calling it aberrant theology because calling it aberrant theology i mean that's basically what heresy is it's so, deviant yeah we're yeah. you're dangerous and deviant and you're dangerous uh, and deviant but you're still a christian <laughs> and you know it, it that i know that lee strobel has worked so hard to try to help people to come to the christian faith and this is a lane that they could come to the christian faith but it seems like he's what he's doing is he's trying to block this lane and there's a lot of people that well if you block this lane then you know, they're going to feel like, well, there's no place in Christianity for me. And I don't know why he would want to, why he would want to do that. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. It's, I think of my friend, Jerry Walls, who said um, that there are times when people, a hindrance to them is the traditionalist view or annihilationist view. They say, you know, will God really annihilate my ancestors? Will he really keep all people apart? And the idea that you can't hold out to them, the notion that, well, there are Christians who hold that view. They are Christian. They're within the realm of the Christian community, and, and they believe that God will save all. The idea that you can't use that to evangelize to someone who is on the fence, to me, is just a little bit concerning, to say the least. Yeah. Well, you've given us a good bit of your time. You're in the visiting of editing your forthcoming book and completing your semester at Princeton. I'm very excited about your scholarship. Looking forward, many of us are looking forward to your continued insights and conversations that we will have. So God bless you and your in the rest of your day and the work that you're doing. Thank you for having me, David. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world 
know about the greatest news ever announced.